This podcast contains language which some people might find offensive. Your mum might be alright with it, your dad will definitely be fine with it, but granny might not like it. That said, your kids might find it educational and learn some new words to make them look cool at school. Also, there are many views and opinions that you might not share, and some fabricated situations that obviously didn't happen. Listener discretion is advised. Just a couple of blokes Pouring all the liner notes We're the rock geeks Yeah, we're the rock geeks Who played on now? Who played on the other? Who did the album for the album cover? We're the rock geeks Yeah, we're the rock geeks Oh, we're the rock geeks Hey, my name is Phil and this is Julian Now then we are two middle-aged northerners, a.k.a. the Rock Geeks, taking a deep dive into the albums that we love, exploring who made them and how, where and when they were made. Last time out, we took a lengthy look at the Manic Street Preacher's third album, The Holy Bible, and thanks very much if you took time out of your day to listen to that. It's much appreciated, and we hope you enjoyed what you heard. Just before you go on, can I come in? How many times have you actually listened to that album since we did the podcast? Uh, precisely zero times. I told you. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's not it's not an album that I will be revisiting in the next oh, 20 years, I don't expect. Full disclosure, we are recording this first run of shows prior to completely getting our podcasting act together. But if you haven't already listened to that episode, you can probably do so via our website or whichever streaming service you subscribe to. On this episode of The Rock Geeks, we are featuring our first live album, doing the bad boy boogie, dealing with the riffraff and letting rock be there, all while quaffing a whole lot of rosé. With ACDCs, if you want blood, you've got it. I've got to tell you, this was the first ACDC album I ever bought. I think, yeah, I think we already had it in the house, but it's the first one I ever listened to. I remember um, I, I got it uh, in a, a second-hand record shop in Wakey called um, Record Exchange, I think it was called. Upstairs at Market House. Yeah, upstairs at Market House. And I, and I, uh, I saw this cover with um, on the cassette, which I'm actually holding in my hand now. The actual cassette? The actual cassette. Um, of of a bloke being impaled by a guitar, and I thought, oh, you know, twelve year old me thought that's that's pretty cool, and I'd heard the name ACDC, like this was very early on in my heavy metal um, career. career, yeah, and I'd heard the name ACDC, and I thought, if the music's as good as the album cover, I'm having it. And I think it cost me something like £2.50 yeah. back It's a in. good place to start, though, isn't it? Yeah, oh, it's a great place to start. I remember putting it straight in my Walkman. Remember them? Yeah. That might be what chewed it up. Yeah. Maybe why it's all chewed up as it is now. Yeah, it might be. It might be. Um, I remember putting it on in my Walkman on the bus on the way home and just thinking, nobody else on this bus is having this amazing experience that I'm having. This is fantastic. <laughs> I was, like, totally... Hooked like a, like just from the opening of Riff Raff, I was like, "This is for me, definitely." Yep. I had it. Um, we had it on vinyl. My dad and my mum liked ACDC, so I remember seeing the cover when I was about <clears throat> five, maybe four or five. And I, I can recall talking to my mum or my dad about it and just saying, "What? What is he? All right?" <laughs> and then being like, hey, well, "It's obviously not real, is it?" And but to my mind at that age. Because it looks, you know, fairly realistic to a five-year-old. And then on the backward, he's got it sticking out of his back as well. And I remember thinking, why ain't the singer really worried about him? <laughs> because he just, you know, 
I do, I do remember thinking that. And I just, yeah, my dad just was just like, well, it's, it's obviously not real, is it? You know, like they've just, they've just done it and couldn't yeah. quite work out how it could be. So while we're talking about the album cover, um, it was photographed by renowned American music photographer Jim Houghton uh, after the band's show at the Paradise Theatre in Boston, Massachusetts on Monday the 21st of August 1978, which is uh, a couple of months after the recording. Yeah. Uh, nearly three months, actually, I think, after the recording of the uh, the album and two months before its release, I believe. So they're running to a tight schedule here. Houghton's other credits uh, include uh, other ACDC albums, Power Ridge and Highway to Hell. Right. He shot those album covers. Um, and he's also shot album covers for the likes of Billy Joel, Sister Sledge uh, and Emerson, Lake and Palmer, so quite a big deal in the 1970s, Jim Houghton. Mm-hmm. Um, so who do you reckon came up with the idea for it? Um, well, apparently, according to the liner notes, the LP artwork was uh, conceived by a bloke called Bob Deffrin. I've never heard of him. Who is he? Um, he? Well, between 1972 and 1991, Bob Deffrin was the creative head of Atlantic Records Art Department. Was he now? He was, yeah. So that's who came up with it. Um, and I've seen pictures online in Forumland of how they came up with the impaled guitar thing right, in, right. in reality. Um, and apparently the two parts of the guitar were attached via wires. Right. Sort of went round the circumference of Angus Young's body right. but remained attached. And that's how they did it. Right. So there you go. I wonder if they fixed it. The guitar? Hmm. Well, they probably could. Yeah, I mean, looking at... Um, Enough Gibson guitar next break we've already established in uh, yeah. you know, our time of doing this, this podcast. Yeah, I, do, I, I, don't, I don't know that it was actually a Gibson. Hmm. I think no. it was more than likely like a cheap palm shop um, guitar that they that they sacrificed to mm. the. Uh, I'm surprised you haven't done any research on what type of guitar it is. Well, I did try to see <laughs> on the headstock, yeah. yeah, but I just couldn't make it out. So yeah, what pickups were on it and stuff. Yeah, it looks like a Gibson to me. They might have sacrificed yeah. one. They might have done. They might have sacrificed Angus Young, and we might be having a Paul McCartney is yeah. dead. Yeah. Scenario. Well, like I said, I actually I thought he were a goner. Now I just think it's. It's unlike anything that's been since it. You wouldn't see that now, would you? No, no, I don't think you would. Um, I think you kind of just take it for granted that that's the cover of that live album. But when you actually look at it as it is there, yeah. you know, it's pretty. It's a bit. It's a bit weird, really, when you look at it in detail, isn't it? It is a bit odd. But then there was a lot about ACDC at the yeah. time, which was was a little bit odd. Um, which I'm sure we'll be discussing later. Um, I, what, I, what I would say is that I think it's pretty cool that your mum and dad were listening to ACDC. My mum and dad were listening to Andy Williams and James Last. Well, so, yeah. you know, um, hats off to your folks for having a cool record collection. Absolutely. How um, many times do you think we'll say the phrase of its time during this? I would imagine a fair few. Especially when we're talking about lyrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's hard to find any 70s rock band that doesn't have some dubious <laughs> lyrical content in their uh, back yeah, catalogue. Of its time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, as we've discussed, the artist is ACDC. The band members on this particular uh, recording, um, some would say the definitive ACDC lineup. Um, I may not disagree with them. I agree. I think it is the definitive one, yeah. yeah. 
Um, so we've got Bon Scott on lead vocals, Angus Young on lead guitar, Malcolm Young on rhythm guitar and backing vocals, uh, Cliff Williams on bass guitar and backing vocals, and Phil Rudd on drums. I've tried to find out who engineered this album um, and how, and I've absolutely drawn a blank. There's, I can't, cannot find any information on uh, who recorded it or how it was recorded. Mm. I do know from the uh, album cover that the producers of the album were Harry Vander and George Young, um, who had produced all of ACDC's albums up to that point. Uh, the mix engineers again, Harry Vander and George Young. Is this their last involvement? This album? Yes, I, th- I do believe it is. Yeah, because I think um, Mutt Lang came in for yeah. Highway to Hell um, after this. Um, so the album was uh, mixed at Albert Studios in Sydney, Australia. Mastering wise, again, no idea. Couldn't Who find knows. any information on this. What I can say is the date and location of the recording. The uh, performance was recorded on the 30th of April 1978 at the uh, Glasgow Apollo Theatre in Scotland um, on the Powerage World Tour. They played again there that year, didn't they? They did. They played a second time, I think in the November, uh, in support of the live album that was right. recorded there. Yeah, doing a live tour to support a live album. Uh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Uh, you, well, you know, milk it for all you can, I say. Mm. The album liner notes state that all tracks were recorded live during the 1978 World Tour. However, uh, Bon Scott has stated in a 1978 interview um, that he was pretty sure the whole album was taken from the Glasgow Apollo performance. The whole album? The whole album. Well, apparently... um, But we will obviously be diving into that a bit later on. Oddly, for this album, it's got three different release dates. Right. it was first released in the UK and Europe on the 13th of October 1978, but wasn't released in the US and Australia until November, um, the 21st of November 78 in the US and the 27th of November 78 in Australia. What the delay is there, I'm not entirely sure. Does it coincide with tour dates? Because people were a bit more obsessed with chart positions than were they. Maybe if they wanted it to kind of sell a lot in one go to have higher ratings on the charts you would do it at a point where they're there to actually physically promote it as well, in the absence yeah. of all the other ways that people promote music now. Um, well, <clears throat> you know, what, what I would say is that um, throughout most of 78, they were on the road uh, in support of the Powerage album, all this album, and the, the, there's undoubtedly some strategic um, yeah. reason for releasing the albums, you know, in that, in that staggered uh, way that they did. Um, Don't you think, like Iron Maiden, though, that it's amazing how much they actually put out in such a short amount of time? When you consider now bands put out one album every four or five years yeah, and do a bit of touring, these bands were always on the road and they still found all the time to write the songs, record them, and then go out and tour that album yeah. and then just repeat all the time. It's a vocation. Yeah. Part of being a, a professional musician back then was accepting life on the road. Mm. Um, and I don't think that, you know, that's such a big part of um, shifting units anymore. No. Yeah. Um, it's the only way you're going to get your face out there, isn't there? In the absence yeah. of kind of social media and TV shows, which just focused on it, YouTube. There's so many other ways to promote yourself now, I suppose. You don't have to. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the album was released in the UK in 1978. Do you want to um, yes. give us an idea of the kind of world mm-hmm. that uh, If You Want Blood was released into? Let's start as we have done before. UK Prime Minister, go on. Uh, I want to say uh, 
Callahan. Correct. James Callahan. Well done. US President. Uh, Jimmy Carter. Well done. And the Russian leader, or the USSR. Oh, I'd be guessing. Tricky, I'd be guessing at uh, Leonard Brezhnev. And you'd be correct. Well done. Hey. Well done, Full House. Right, films. Pop bit of pop culture. Go on. Greece was one of the highest grossing films. Also, the first Superman film. Animal House. I don't think I've ever seen Animal House. I, I, I've seen clips of it. It's um, is it James Belushi? Right. Okay. Yeah. Every which way but loose. Wow, Clint Eastwood. Heaven can wait. Jaws 2, uh, The Deer Hunter. Yeah, They're yeah. some of the biggest films of the year. Yeah, some good uh, some good films <clears> in that <throat> lot. I'm sure there were others that I've missed. Yeah. Notable albums. My favourite album title of all time. More songs about buildings and food. <laughs> um, I've, <laughs> I've no idea. Talking Heads. Parallel Lines. Oh, that's Blondie. Outlandos yeah. Damore. Oh, uh, the police. Yeah, give him enough rope. Clash. Equinox. Jean Michel Jarre. Yeah. yeah. All mod cons. Uh, oh, Your favourite? Yeah, the jam. Yeah. This year's model. Uh, Elvis Costello. Two more for you. Darkness on the Edge of Town. Oh, that's one of my favourite Springsteen albums, that. And jazz. Oh, that was Queen. It was Queen. Wow, there's some pretty cool. I know. Albums I told you it was a good one. Yeah, it's a really good year for uh, for rock music and punk and whatnot. Rock albums, because although some of those were kind of veering into rock, Live and Dangerous. Oh yeah, uh, the other the other classic live album of the era, Thin Lizzy, yeah. which I'm sure we'll cover at some point. Power Ridge, never heard of it. No, no. Bat Out of Hell. Oh, classic, classic Meatloaf. Yeah, I, I gave Meatloaf a hard time for a lot of years, but. You know what? That You're album, not warming to him now, are you? Yeah, I am. That album is... Right, let's move on. It's amazing. Never Say Die. Uh, oh, Black Sabbath. Well done. Hemispheres. Oh, I don't know that one. Rush. Oh, do you know when we did the Iron Maiden one and we were thinking of a band who had the name of a song, which was the name of the band and the name of the album as well? Yeah. Motorhead. Oh, yeah. They did the same thing as well. Yeah. I don't know why that just came to mind, but yeah, they did it too. I like it. So, 1978 Events... First test tube baby born in the UK. Oh wow, that that's pretty for for nineteen seventy eight. That is pretty uh, pretty good. Yeah, Louise Brown pub quiz trivia. Yeah. If you ever need it, test tube baby by the press. Uh, uh, first Garfield comic strip. Jim <clears throat> Jim Davis was that his name? Who that's did the, one. the Garfield thing. The US stopped production of the neutron bomb. Oh, which, which apparently helpfully kills people but leaves buildings and infrastructure standing. Wow. Hmm? How? I have no idea. I, I mean, know. you know, thanks very much for stopping that. It's much appreciated. World's yeah. population was 4.4 billion. It must be nearly double that now. I, be- I believe it is. I read something the other day that um, said that world population was going to peak in about 20 or 30 years at about 8.5 billion. UK opposition leader, your mate, Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> says that many Britons fear being swamped by people with a different culture. So 45 years ago, and people are still having the same rhetoric. Fuck, all has changed. <laughs> yeah. Football-wise, Forrest won the league. Liverpool won the European Cup. Oh, was that Cup. under um, Brian yep. Clough? Clough it, yeah. Yeah. For those the other side of the pond, Dallas Cowboys won the Super Bowl. All right. Leon Spinks defeated Muhammad Ali. Yeah. That's, yeah... Some of those fight ones are make uncomfortable viewing, don't they? Yeah, the, the later alley fights are definitely difficult to watch. Yeah. Carl Wallander, founder of the Flying Wallanders, 
Now, he was a tightrope walker. How do you reckon he died? Um, <laughs> he fell uh, off a tightrope. Did he? Yeah. How high up was it? Was it? I don't know. High enough to die. Yeah. TV yeah. shows. Mork and Mindy. What's the link oh. to ACDC with Mork and Mindy? This I is have, really tenuous. I have absolutely no idea. Um, is it something to do with Robin Williams? Kind of. Go on. Bon Scott's last spoken sung words uh, were Shazbat Nanu Nanu <laughs> at, the, at the end of The Prowler at the end right. of um, Highway to Hell right ah, cool also that year Dallas Taxi Battlestar Galactica Grange Hill Kenny yeah. Everett oh did, have you watched some of Kenny Everett stuff recently it's just not funny is it it's just not <laughs> funny in the slightest The Sandbaggers which makes me laugh for some reason yeah. like the bagpipers Notable Deaths Keith Moon yeah yeah Ed Wood Oh, the film director, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Notable births, Matt Hancock, <laughs> <laughs> Matt Bellamy, Frank Lampard, Ramesh Ranganathan. All things considered, I think 1978 was a decent year, wasn't it? Mm, not bad. From, from, you know, from yeah. the music that came out to the, um, and the films. and what, I mean, Greece, what a classic. I did find one which confused me a bit. It said, 25th of August, US Army Sergeant Walter Robinson walks across the English Channel in 11 hours and 30 minutes, using homemade water shoes. That is impressive. What do you think homemade water shoes are? <laughs> I have no idea. But what, what, what I'd like to see is, you know when you're doing your shopping on High Street and you, you decide mm. to cross a road where there's not a zebra crossing and a truck comes along yep. and you have to quicken your pace? I'd like to see him in the shipping lane with mm. a massive oil tanker barrelling towards him and him yeah. trying to get out of the way in his homemade water yeah. shoes. Yeah, smuggies then. Yeah. yeah. They look a bit like water skis, apparently. How do you get to a stage in your life where you think... I know what I'm going to do. Hmm. I'm going to walk the English Channel. I know. I ain't even got like, time to mow lawn at the moment. No, I know. I know. Right, so if we get back to historical context, I think the location of this, where the album was recorded, um, is very much of its time, and the type of venue it was as well, because there aren't many of them still intact. No. Or still used anyway. A lot of them have slowly been kind of turned into something else or knocked down and yeah. become, you know, a Nando's or something. Yeah, well, you know, at this point of the podcast, we usually start talking about a recording studio. Um but the like, absence of that will shave a good hour and a half off the running time, won't we? Yeah. We've got to say Neve console, though. Surely that's yeah. just for tradition. Well, the thing is, we don't know, do we? So I don't know yeah. that we can. Um, I think this might be the first episode where we... In fact, it is the first episode where we're not going to mention a Neve console. Uh, About in, compression. In, in use. No, I don't think we'll go there either. Um, okay. But what we will do is we will talk about the Glasgow Apollo Theatre. Mm. Which for for twelve years was the premier live music venue in in Glasgow, um, and you know, as we will get into, probably for good reason. You know, it's, it seems like it was a a decent venue if you could avoid yeah. the bouncers. Yeah. Um, so from from Wikipedia and the GlasgowApollo.com website. 
The Apollo is a music venue at 126 Renfield Street in Glasgow City Centre, Scotland. Uh, the Apollo operated from the 5th of September 1973 until its closure on the 16th of June 1985 and was Glasgow's leading music venue during this period. Um, so the first thing I would say about that is 12 years isn't really a long time, is it? Um, really? And and when you look at the GlasgowPolo.com uh, website, which is a great website uh, full of really interesting uh, information and photographs of, of concerts and, you know, just loads of sort of memorabilia on there. When you look at the number of bands and the quality of the bands that played there, um, I don't think there was a weekend went by where there wasn't a, like a massive mm. name in rock and pop music performing there. Well, if you think it's Glasgow, a major city in Scotland, so if it's a major venue in a major city in Scotland, then that's where people are going to go, isn't it? It's yeah. not like in the yeah. UK, in England rather, where there's you know there's a lot of cities of that size or approaching that size, whereas in Scotland there's far less, isn't there, because of yeah. the size of it? Yeah. <clears throat> So before it was a live music venue, the Apollo um, was known as the Playhouse Cinema, which was built by brothers Bert and Fred Green, and the Playhouse opened its doors on the 15th of September 1927. So the, you know, so the building was, by the time it opened as the Apollo, you know, it, it was pretty, you know, pretty, it had been there a long time. It was a well-established uh, landmark in the city. Um, and it was thought to be the largest cinema in Europe at the time. Uh, with a maximum capacity of 4,000 people. That's about the same as the Hammersmith Apollo, I think. Yeah. I think but, it's around that size. But it? for a cinema... Oh, yeah, for a cinema, sorry. Like, yeah. 4,000 people, like... Mm. I can't imagine living in a in a time, especially you know now that we have, like, you know, the internet and... Netflix. Netflix and all that, where 4,000 like-minded people would go and stare at a screen together you know it just seems it just seems alien to me that whole sort of concept um however um, by 1973 the playhouse uh, was in such serious structural decline the green brothers were considering having it demolished to make way for a new development so instead they thought i know well yeah at, um, at this point in the story um in step the fantastically named unicorn leisure to save the day oh Unicorn Leisure already leased the top floor of the Playhouse building for their aptly named Clouds Discotheque, uh, which was aptly named A, because it was on the top floor, um, and B, because that's where the unicorns live. Oh, yeah. Um, and when word got around of the Green Brothers' intentions, Unicorn Leisure applied to lease the whole building, seeing its potential as a live music venue. Uh, they later went on to open the Rainbows and Glitter Bingo Hall and the Cotton Candy Variety Club. Oh. Discotech's going to die out as a word, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's uh, a shame, really. Yeah. Well, is it... I don't know. Like, you know, did did the Discotech ever go away or did it just rebrand as a nightclub? Who knows? Mm, I prefer Discotech. Yeah, me too. The Playhouse was rebranded as the Apollo um, because the sign-writing company charged 250 quid per letter, uh, which, when adjusted for inflation, is approximately £3,868.32 today, um, meaning that the six letters in Apollo would cost a grand total of £23,209.92 in today's money. So it's not just them being tight, but even so, it seems a bit steep to me. What were these letters made of? I've no idea. Solid gold, I think. 
So, Julian, take a guess uh, who the first artist was to perform at the Apollo on the 5th and 6th of September 1973. 73. Slade. It'd be a good guess, and I think they did play there before 73 was out. T-Rex. Again, another good guess, but um, uh, you need to go less glam rock. David Essex. I don't think he'd have lasted two minutes at the Glasgow Apollo. I have to right. say, they'd have probably beaten him alive. Um, oh. It was the man in black, uh, Johnny Cash, no? who good. ended a short UK tour there. Um, he was swiftly followed by the Rolling Stones on the 16th of September. What album would they have been on around that time? Uh, 73. Goat's Head Soup, perhaps. Right, okay. I think it was probably that one. Uh, the Glasgow Apollo quickly gained a reputation for being a lively venue with a highly charged atmosphere driven by enthusiastic crowds. Um, no doubt fueled by plenty of booze. What's she going to do? Exactly. I, I I can't imagine that there was much else to do. Smoke uh, tabs, drink booze. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it attracted all the big names of the day. Um, before 73 was out, the Apollo had also played host to uh, Elton John, Queen, uh, Neil Young, The Eagles and Dinah Ross. Hmm. Like you said, they got the big hitters, didn't they? They did. I mean, I mean, looking at that list, um, they're certainly all big hitters now. But Queen in '73 were at the very start of their um, career, right? So they're just a few artists um, who, if they weren't already at the time, as we've said, went on to be super big hitters in the music business. Not only was the Apollo the place to play in Glasgow in the '70s and '80s, uh, but it also became the place for bands to record their live albums due to the exuberant crowds and good acoustics. Uh, but mainly the exuberant crowds. Mm. Other live albums to be recorded there in uh, the Apollo's 12-year history. King Crimson recorded The Great Deceiver there. It's a big uh, void for me, King Crimson. Yeah, well, it, it it was recorded in the early 70s, but didn't come out until the late 90s. All right. Um, By a big void, I mean, I don't know anything about them, not that I avoid them. Yeah, I, I, I've tried to like Kim King Have Crimson. You? One of those bands. Yeah, but it's just too much, it's too much hard work for me. I mean, if you listen to Court of the Crimson King, you'll mm. fully understand I'll what I'm talking about. Yeah, um, You'll probably give it a whirl for about five minutes and then you'll think, fuck this. <laughs> um, Status Quo recorded uh, their album Live mm. there, uh, imaginative um, title. Um, Roxy Music recorded Viva there. Uh, the Rizillos, um, one of Scotland's greatest punk bands. Uh, recorded Mission Accomplished, but the beat goes on there. Uh, and there's a few others. Uh, Alice Cooper, Big Country, Motorhead, Stranglers, all recorded live albums or portions of live albums at the Glasgow Apollo. Okay. And in addition to this list, uh, many performances were broadcast live on Radio Clyde, which no doubt spawned many a bootleg. Um, and there is a guy um, who I'll mention later who is trying to find all the Glasgow Apollo bootlegs and, and archive right. them, um, which is quite a quite a task, mm. I would say. Um, Again, but, who's got time? Yeah, yeah. It's like the bloke, <laughs> the bloke with the water shoes, isn't it? Yeah. Well, listen, you know, you've, <laughs> got, to, you've got to have a, a passion in life, haven't you? Mm. So the Glasgow Apollo Auditorium was notable for two features in particular. Um, firstly, the stage, which was a whopping 15 feet 6 inches high, sloping back to front towards the audience. If you think about the room that we're in... It's not whopping, is it? Fifteen foot? I mean, the room we're in is, what, seven, eight foot? Yeah. Like it's... it's right, okay. Like, imagine a snooker table <clears throat> up on its end and then 
like add three foot. Right. Okay. It's, yeah. That is, I guess. I mean, if you've got vertigo as a performer, then you're right. gonna you're gonna struggle. Um, Jake Burns of the Stiff Little Fingers uh, said that it was the only venue that they played at where they, if the audience members made it onto the stage, yeah. they were allowed to stay up there uh, because they'd earned it. <laughs> I like that. Um, um, however, according to Mitch Stevenson's 2021 radio documentary, The Glasgow Apollo Experience, um, it was well known amongst uh, Apollo regulars that you avoided the first six rows of the stalls if you wanted to see the whole band. Right. So the stalls is the, the stalls down on the, the floor. Down yeah. The floor. Yeah. To me, it sounds like it should be the first level. The stalls. I don't yeah. know why. I always get. I, yeah. It always it always confuses me that as well. The second thing, the second feature of the Glasgow Apollo, which which it was really well known for, was the bouncing balcony which was apparently designed and built to move up and down as the audience jumped around to the music. So they would, uh, they would test its structural integrity uh, on, many a, on many a night. And legend has it that it would bounce so much that its upswing would literally throw people up into the air, which if you were on the front row of that balcony would be, I imagine, absolutely terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. Like one minute you're on the balcony, the next minute you're being projected like off the balcony into the stalls. Different times. Yeah, absolutely. Despite its success as a music venue, the Apollo uh, building continued to fall into a state of disrepair due to Unicorn Ledger's make-do approach to maintenance. One example of this decline uh, was related to Mitch Stevenson by an Apollo punter who remembered the male toilets <laughs> being awash with piss due to desperate concert goers using one of the urinals that didn't have a downpipe attached to it. Right. <laughs> Which just beggars belief to me. Like, oh, I'm going to, you might as well just pee on your own shoes. I know, I'm just thinking there's, not, there's no point in even being there, is there? Um, and this wasn't the only plumbing disaster that occurred at the Apollo. Uh, in the 80s, in the early 80s, Tina Turner had to perform her whole set with a burst sewage pipe providing a unique atmosphere all of its own. Uh, one unlucky punter trying to get into the venue free of charge by shimmying up a drain pipe to an upper window was heard to say, <laughs> Cheerio, lads, to the people beneath him as his section of the drain pipe came away from the wall. Um there were all kinds of. Uh, I read that there were all kinds of tricks that people used to do to get into the Apollo for um, for now for for free. Uh, one of which was one person would go in, and then they would put their ticket into a matchbox and throw the matchbox out of the toilet window oh. to their mate, who would then come in and get in on the same ticket. Right. Um, I can only imagine that tickets didn't come in two sections back then. But anyway, in mid-1977, uh, the owner of Unicorn Leisure relocated to Florida, um, which he did so on the back of a winged unicorn, leaving a glittery rainbow vapor trail behind him. Hmm. No doubt. Yeah, I reckon. Um, the lease for the venue was acquired by Apollo Leisure Group, um, who experienced considerable problems with the building's structural condition and later considered relinquishing the lease in 1978 with Mecca Bingo expressing an interest in the acquisition of the building. Um, a successful campaign to preserve the building's status as a music venue included a 100,000 signature petition, including support from Paul McCartney and Eric Clapton. The resumption uh, was to herald a seven-year downward spiral until the venue finally closed for business on the 16th of June, 1985. Uh, do you want to take a guess at who the last act to play at the Glasgow Apollo was? 1985. Yeah. Run no, no. Um, um, I'm trying to think who was Banana Rama. 
not as oh. good as Bananarama. Go on. The Style Council. Oh, another one of your favourites. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, who apparently finished the night with their, frankly, awful rendition of Curtis Mayfield's Move On Up. Adding insult to injury. Last it night, is, it's not bowing out with a, in any kind of glory. No, no. It's um, it's a bit of a damp squib of a last night, I would say. Um, when ACDC performed at the Glasgow Apollo on the uh, 30th of April 1978, uh, they were just four dates into their Powerage World Tour, the first three of which at Wolverhampton Civic Hall on the 26th, Hanley Victoria Hall on the 27th, and the Aberdeen Capital Theatre on the 29th, had to be postponed, uh, allegedly, due to Angus Young being too ill to perform. Which makes, for me, the performance that they gave on the night absolutely all the more impressive. Um, because Angus Young is recovering from an illness mm. and they're going in cold. They're recording a live album on the f- effectively the first night of the tour. And usually live albums uh, that are produced from a single performance are recorded towards the middle mm. or the end of a tour when a band are... Like a performing Into the swing like a, of things. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're a well, well-oiled machine um, and fewer mistakes are likely to be made. For example, Iron Maiden was seven months into their World Slavery Tour when they recorded the first three sides of Live After Death. And Dire Straits' Alchemy uh, was recorded on the last two nights of their Love right. Over Gold World Tour. So, you know, the, uh, those performances were done by bands that were just in the groove, mm. you know, um, so yeah, yeah, massively impressive that they that they recorded this album uh, on the first night of the tour. The performance was the second of five uh, that the Bon Scott era ACDC would give uh, to the Glasgow Apollo audiences between October nineteen seventy seven and October nineteen seventy nine. In a super meta moment, as we mentioned, the band would return to the Apollo on November the first, nineteen seventy eight, to promote the live album that they'd recorded there just six months before. That ties your head in knots a bit, doesn't it? It does a bit. I mean, yeah. the people in crowd, I prefer live version. <laughs> yeah. yeah, prefer album yeah. version. Oh, it's the same thing. They um, could have just played the album. Yeah, <laughs> like just got on stage. Well, put the needle on the vinyl. And, they could have done that for one of the songs. Well, they, they could have done. Yeah, yeah. As we'll get into, um, the April thirtieth show has been described by one fan commenting on ACDC net as the loudest gig I think I've been to the building seemed to shake like others I had school the next day I was 16 and my ears were still ringing mm. kids today would complain about the volume which is probably in the litigious society that we live in uh, is probably not far off the mark indeed I've read elsewhere um, in ACDC forum land one account of the band playing at a much smaller 300 to 400 capacity venue in Europe where the author of the post recounts a painfully loud, awful-sounding gig, noting that the sound engineer put earplugs in just before the band took to the stage. <laughs> when, the, when the sound engineer is putting earplugs yeah. in, you know that it's time to stand at the back. <laughs> uh, the live sound engineer in question was a young Mike Scarf, uh, founder of MHA Audio, uh, the company who provided the PA system for Live Aid at Wembley Stadium. Right. So Spectoid. Yeah. Um, I have trawled through the interweb on numerous occasions during this uh, research in this uh, album. But on this occasion, I was trying to find out uh, which mobile studio was used to record the Glasgow Apollo performance, but to no avail. An obvious candidate would be the Rolling Stones mobile studio, which incidentally uh, was used to record Status Quo's live album, which was also recorded at the Glasgow Apollo in October 76. Uh, However... 
On the notable projects section of the Rolling Stone Mobile's Wikipedia page, um, if you want blood, is not listed. But that said, neither is the band's 1979 performance given at the Pavilion de Paris uh, for the Let There Be Rock movie, which was recorded using the Rolling Stone Mobile, as was, a little later on, for those about to rock. Very good. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility. Um, it could have been the Rolling Stone mobile. Um, certainly in this country, mobile studios were few and far between, and the only other uh, notable possibility is the Ronnie Lane mobile studio. Um, however, I can't find any association with ACDC at all. So if, if I had to um, go out on a limb, I would say um, that it was the Rolling Stone mobile studio. I'm inclined um, to agree with you based on what you've said. Yeah. Um, so that's the uh, Glasgow Apollo. Shall we uh, have a chat about the gear that they used? Yep. Um, I don't think, even for people who aren't really like into musical equipment, I don't think there's going to be many surprises. Uh, no, I don't either. In this section. So from the available concert footage on YouTube, um, it appears that Angus Young played uh, the same guitar for the whole show, um, which, surprise, surprise, was a Gibson SG. But the question is, I hear you asking... What does SG stand for? That's what um, I was just going to ask. Well, that's a different question, but you know I think it's solid guitar, isn't it? I think you it? might be right, actually, yeah. yeah. Um, it was, the SG was originally the Les Paul yeah. model, but Les Paul objected because he didn't like the look of the guitar, um, and so they renamed it, imaginatively enough, the SG. Well, they're already a Les Paul guitar. Yes, yeah. But Gibson took it upon themselves to redesign it. And, this, and they stopped, So they stopped producing the Les Paul as we know it now. Yes. Redid it as Les Paul like this. Yeah. Which is what they... Right, okay, I'm with you. I get yeah. you. Right, okay. And then Les Paul said, uh, no. Um, so that's how the SG uh, came about. Um, but the other question oh, is, yeah. what variety of Gibson SG was it? So the main identifiable features that might help us to date Young's SG, um, it's got a wide batwing scratch plate, trapezoidal inlays, Crown inlay on the headstock, neck binding, and key to this is the walnut finish because pre-1970, um, Gibson SGs were mainly cherry red. So the walnut SG came in sort of in the early 70s. Um, it's got Grover-style tuning pegs, which are non-original. Other examples uh, from the time have Clusons, and we've also got photographic evidence of Angus Young with the guitar in 1972-73, slash right. um, and it's got Clusons on it, the tulip-style tuning pegs. It's got a wraparound bridge, um, which is non-original to the guitar, because the guitar originally had uh, a lyre sideways vibrola system on it. The bridge in question, we think, is a Leo Quain badass bridge, which is what Malcolm Young was using on his guitar. They make those for basses as well. Very good bridges, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's got uh, witch hat control knobs and a volute, which we've discussed before. uh, Go on, on remind me. On the Weezer pod. Um, It's a a, a protrusion on the back of the neck at the 
base of the headstock. Yeah. Where the headstock meets the uh, the neck. Yeah. And it just basically reinforces. Oh yeah, because they're prone to snapping. Yes, it just reinforces that part of the neck, makes it a little bit stronger. So all, all the things I've just mentioned um, point towards Young's guitar being a 1970 Gibson SG standard, which it is, because we, we, it's well documented that um, he purchased it brand new in about 1971. Um, and it was his main guitar for live and studio work until he retired it to the studio after the 1978 Powerage tour. And it's been played on every ACDC album since. Oh, it's a nice little touch, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um the keen-eyed amongst folks might notice that there's an empty jack socket on the... I'd never noticed this before until you pointed it out. Yeah, yeah. There's no there's no jack lead plugged into, mm. the, into the jack socket. But you explain um, the reasons why. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. So Jung um, famously was an early adopter of the Schaefer Vega wireless transmitter system, um, which allowed him to run around the stage without tying himself in knots um, and also venture into the audience without having a super long cable in tow. So f- from, from Wikipedia, um, the Schaefer Vega diversity system, or SVDS, um, as I think I'll refer to it from now on, was a wireless guitar system developed in 1975-76, uh, engineered and prototyped by Ken Schaefer in New York City and manufactured by the Vega Corporation. The SVDS uh, used a space diversity method consisting of two independent VHF receivers fed by antennas placed at least one wavelength apart. Um, this is going to be a little bit technical so just bear with me um, hopefully it will it will make sense use of two full independent receivers rather than two parallel antennas made the Schaefer Vega system the first true diversity system and what this means is um, the diversity technique prevented signal degradation due to multipath cancellation in the Schaefer Vega system a comparator monitored the instantaneous RF signal strength delivered by each antenna to its dedicated receiver that switched to the other receiver when the currently selected receiver's signal strength fell below a quieting threshold. Basically, there's there's two antennas working independently and the unit automatically switches between them when one loses signal. It, it switches to the stronger signal constantly. The system achieved high interference rejection by using four helical resonator filters between the antenna and the pre-amplifier stage of each receiver. This made it possible to use the systems on unused VHF television broadcast frequencies and protected the receivers from even strong, spurious local signals such as nearby police calls, taxi dispatch, etc. Um, so, you know, there are various stories of rock concerts where, where bands are using wireless systems and um, all of a sudden a, a taxi rank comes through the PA system mid-song. Um, so basically it stops that. So, um, although um, Schaefer's design objective was to create a wireless system that sounded transparent as close as possible to the wired version, artists such as Rick Derringer, Eddie Van Halen and Angus Young of ACDC uh, chose to use their wireless units in the recording studio. Um, The slight coloration added by the Schaefer Vega was considered part of the desired guitar tone. Production of the Schaefer Vega diversity system eventually ceased in 1981 when Schaefer decided to focus his attention on communication satellites. However, a replica of the original unit, imaginatively named the Schaefer Replica, um, 
It's now produced in San Diego by a company called Solo Dallas. Right. <laughs> Solo Dallas founder Phil Olivieri uh, interviewed Ken Schaefer about Angus Young's use of the SVDS, um, and he had this to say about the installation of the transmitter into Young's SG. Somewhere before the Glasgow series of shows, some Angus tech requested that experimentation with the placing of the X10 transmitter be made. Um, Ken cut, upon request, a hole inside the back of the guitar, and he put the board of the X10 transmitter inside the guitar. That was that. A whole lot of duct tape was then put on the back of the guitar and partially to the lower left to cover any possible seam line and avoid Angus's sweat pouring inside. That was a lovely, lovely thought. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you look at... Um, I mean, sweat can be quite corrosive, I think. Mm. If you look at uh, Rory, Rory Gallagher's famous Strat... And that's um, just what happens to your strings, isn't it? Once you've had them on for a bit longer, all the stuff off your fingers and... Sweating that discolours them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it can even strip a guitar, God. Uh, as uh, Rory Gallagher found out. Um, Mr. Schaefer notes, you should have seen that guitar before we cut the hole and put the duct tape on. He also said that the guitar, once it got to his shop, looked absolutely horrible. It was dirty as it could be, scratched and banged to say the least, battered to the bones. In order to make some details work electronically, two sets of short SVDS cables were installed. Angus would use one at a time. One would turn on the X10 and the other would turn it off and allow the guitar to be played with a regular cable from another jack output input. So obviously he's, you know, he's got this uh, wireless system installed um, uh, to a point where it's not going to be disconnected by audience members grabbing at his guitar and at him. And it's safely installed at the back of the guitar, but it still needs a backup just in case yeah. it goes, tits up. So it can plug in. Yeah, so he's got a little switch on there, which means he can alternate between his regular jack socket and the wireless system. The SVDS has since become an integral part of Angus Young's setup. Um, and during the recording of Highway to Hell, uh, Young was struggling to achieve his trademark tone with a guitar cable. So producer Mutt Lang suggested that he use his live setup instead. Uh, and Young has used the SVDS both live and in the studio ever since. So I can hear you asking, Phil, Phil, uh, what is it about the SVDS that makes it so appealing to Angus Young? Phil. Well, I'm glad you asked that. So Solo Dallas have this to say about their own product, uh, named The Storm. Um, the gain knob controls our signature clipping circuit that bumps the crucial low-mid frequencies responsible for giving live instruments punch and making them stand out in the mix. Think Angus Young guitar tone. The boost knob controls a powerful preamp capable of delivering a whopping 31 dB of clean boost. This analogue boost is perfect for making lead parts stand out, adding fullness to the signal, going into the front end of your amplifier or pushing it into oblivion. Um, and then the limiter knob controls Ken Schaefer's signature opto-isolator limiter. This optical analogue circuit naturally limits the audio signal path going into the pedal circuitry, unlike the complementary compander circuit that smooths out amplitude after the signal reaches its peak. Limiting is commonly used by mastering engineers to transparently raise overall level, without the risk of clipping and distortion generally associated with gain increases. Sensitivity of this effect may be fine-tuned for different output pickups or to give your instrument an open or percussive attack. Um, so essentially, what's going on uh, with this unit? 
um, is that it's controlling the gain of the input signal and limiting it, mm. which will do two things. Um, it'll firstly keep the signal at a fairly constant level. Across. Will it compress it? It, it will. We said it. Hmm. Yeah, we said the word compress. <laughs> Uh, goes, uh, yeah, it will. It'll compress it and it'll make sure that all the strings across the whole fretboard sound at the same uh, volume. volume. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, and secondly, um, it'll probably increase the guitar sustain, allowing notes to hang on for longer. Um, however, this additional sustain comes at a price, which is a loss of output level. So mm. to compensate for this, Schaefer added the LM386 audio amplifier at the end of the circuit to boost the signal back up to its original level and beyond. Um, the net result of this is that the preamps of Angus Young's Marshall amps will be being hit with a much stronger signal than they would otherwise, which will force the amp to overdrive more than it's capable of without the boost in front of it. Um, generally speaking, this also results in additional compression from the amp, especially at the volumes that Angus Young was playing at, mm. um, and exciting of the high end frequencies, also known as presence. Obviously, um, there are other things on play depending on how the boost circuit is voiced. Um, for example, as mentioned a minute ago, the storm is voiced to um, boost the low mid frequencies. Um, but the additional compression and presence are two effects that the SVDS produced that I think would have appealed to Angus Young. Why? Um, because feel is really important, um, especially if you're a lead guitarist. And the more connected you feel to your instrument, i.e. the more responsive it is to your touch, uh, the better you play. An overdriven guitar signal with just the right mix of compression and presence will certainly help in that mm. regard. So there you go. Um, I mean, you know, the SG is integral to Angus Young's um, setup, obviously. It's his signature instrument. Um, but it could be argued that the SVDS um, is... Contributes a lot to, you know, the yeah, tone, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um so what was that going into? What did he plug into? Well, um, unsurprisingly... Have a, have a guess. Yeah. <laughs> unsurprisingly, um, it, Angus Young was, as always... Well, not always, but in the main used Marshall heads. And on the footage that's available and available images from uh, the, the concert, the Marshall heads in question, they've got a big script logo, rocker switches, and two inputs. Right. Um, which places the amps post-1976. And the, the amp in question uh, is a Marshall 100-watt 2203 JMP Mark II Super Lead Master Volume, which I think is the longest... It is quite... It's not snappy. No, it's snappy not. title for it, is Can it? You know, do you imagine doing a sales pitch? It's like, this is the Marshall mm. Destroyer. No, it's the Marshall 100-watt 2203 JMP Mark II, Super Lead Master Volume Heads. Yeah, I like it. It's good. Yeah. Why, why has everyone fallen asleep? So that, they're the amps that he was using. Um, it was also using, surprise, surprise, Marshall 4x12 cabs. Uh, what they were loaded with, I'm not sure. Probably, I would imagine, stock speakers for the time, um, which are probably Celestians, um, I would imagine. We do know... What settings Angus Young used? How? So it's been it's been documented in, in two different places um, the settings that Angus Young would have used. Solo Dallas, as we mentioned earlier, have uh, have a website which has an archive of interesting ACDC gear facts. Right. Um, and the definit 
the well, I'd say definitive settings. The guy um, Phil Oliveri has, has has actually spoken to Angus Young and has interviewed him on a couple of occasions, and he's got some inside information. Um, there's also an article in from a 1984 Guitar World magazine edition, which basically says that um, the settings that he used, he had um, the the presence on zero, bass, mid, and treble on five, master on six, and preamp at six. Um, so you know, basically, everything barring mm. the presence up the middle. According to the 1984 Guitar World article, all four stacks are set virtually the same and read volume at full, treble and bass at half, mid range at half, presence at zero. Um, if there's a lack of top end, depending on the configuration of a hall, it will kick in the presence as compensation. Has he done um, a rig rundown? Is there one of those on Premier Guitar? I'm yes, there if is. It's changed over the years or anything like that. Um, it hasn't. Has he not? It hasn't. Except the only the only difference is is that he has more amps. So he's he's got like um, I think he's running eight Marshall heads, right. driving each driving two cabs each, um, and he runs them all because. Apparently, he wants to get coverage across. You know, when he's playing these massive stadiums, he wants to get coverage across the whole yeah stage front of the stage. Right. So he's running all these amps at the same time. Uh, according to Solar Dallas, the Vega Wireless settings, um, he has the TX, which is the transmitter, uh, at three o'clock, um, and the RX, which is the receiver, uh, with rear boost set to plus twenty dB. So he's 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 kicking an additional twenty decibels of of. Uh, signal strength into um, his martial amps. Which I'm, not, I'm can... not surprised that bloke said it was the loudest thing he'd ever heard. Yeah. When you think yeah. about all this, all these boosts that are going on, eight different heads, yeah. all the cabs, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and you know, those, those Marshall 100-watt uh, tops... Have they got some poke? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I had a reissue SLP 1959 head, uh, which was non-master volume, and... It was unbearably loud. Uh, it was actually ungiggable. I couldn't, you know, there wasn't a sound engineer in right. a small club in the north of England that would entertain. Uh, they just laugh at you. That amp, yeah. No, I, no. Yeah. <laughs> you're not using that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Moving on to Malcolm Young, again, probably not going to be a massive surprise to ACDC fans, this one. Um, he used a, a heavily modified 1963 Gretsch Jet Firebird, uh, which he renamed The Beast. Which It was gifted to Malcolm Young by ACDC producer Harry Vander, who was formerly of the Easy Beats in the early 70s. Um, information from johnrlovit.wordpress.com. While George and Harry were on tour in the USA with the Easy Beats, Harry bought a Red Gretsch G6131 Jet Firebird guitar. Um, the Jet Firebird was a double cutaway with two Filtertron pickups. The body is mahogany with a maple top and is also semi-hollow. This gives the guitar a more jangly sound. It had a vibrato system made by Burns of London and a bound ebony fingerboard. 
By the early 70s, the Easy Beats had ended and George and Harry Vander concentrated more on producing. Vander gave his red Gretsch to Malcolm, who along with younger brother Angus had just formed a band named ACDC, a name they got from a sticker on the back of their sister's sewing machine. Uh, it wasn't long before Malcolm started to modify the Gretsch. He added a humbucking pickup between the two filtertrons, uh, plus a set of controls for it on the upper horn of the guitar. This configuration can be seen in the video for the song It's a Long Way to the Top If You Want to Rock and Roll in 1975. But by the late 70s, Malcolm had dispensed with the middle pickup and at some point decided to strip the red finish from the guitar, clear coating the pale maple top. So in, in, in addition to these modifications, Malcolm Young also removed the Burns tremolo in favour of a Leo Quinn badass wraparound bridge. Um, along with all the electronics except the bridge pickup and associated volume and tone controls. That sole remaining pickup is said to be the key to the ACDC rhythm tone. Um, it's Filtertron Humbucker, which is said to have greater clarity and a sweeter top end due to having a lower output than the traditional humbucking pickup, sitting somewhere between that and a single core pickup. Um, this is the guitar that he used exclusively on If You Want Blood. Which you can buy a replica of, which I'm just looking at. Yes, you Guess can. Guess how much? Uh, I think it was about two and a half grand. £2,739. Yeah, yeah. Um, You've got to be pretty dedicated to shell out that for... You have. Um, you have. There's there's a video of, of Scott Ian playing that guitar. Right. The replica. The replica. The, right, okay. Yeah. Um, I think it's the replica. And he's talking about how Malcolm Young was basically his idol from a rhythm guitar point of view. And he plays uh, Girls Got Rhythm and he just plays it perfectly. Like, it? it's, yeah, it's it's absolutely bang on. Like, if if ACDC ever needed a rhythm guitarist, Scott Ian is the man. Well, the um, there was a video of, of Justin Hawkins talking about he loves ACDC. And sometimes he said, because it's panned hard left and right, every so often just listen to the whole album, just yeah. Malcolm Young. So you can just have that because obviously the first thing that comes to you is Angus Young, isn't it? Because he's playing most of the lead bits. But he said, just yeah. listen to it with the rhythm guitar. It's amazing. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, amps. Again, no surprises here. Um, from an August 2020 guitarworld.com article. Like Angus, Malcolm is a martial guy through and through. And whereas Angus prefers super leads, Malcolm would often opt for super bass heads. Originally designed as a bass amp, the Super Bass shared circuitry with the Super Lead model, but was tweaked to give greater clean headroom at high volume. Perfect for Malcolm, whose rhythm tone is surprisingly clean. Uh, and his amp settings reflect this. Keep the bass in the mid around 3, and the treble and gain around 7 for the ballpark tone. Other marshals have been seen in Malcolm's rig over the years, the JTM45 being used more than any other model, but the Super Bass gives the quintessential DC rhythm tone. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Um, no pedals. No pedals. Which I, I just think is amazing. Yeah. Because some, yeah, don't matter. I just, I just love the fact that they don't have any pedals. There's not even yeah. a tuner in it, somebody said. Yeah. I was like, they don't even have a tuner. They just sort of, maybe the techs will tune it up at the beginning and then, you know, yeah. they'll use one. But there's, there isn't one in the signal chain. Yeah. I've, I've often fantasised, <laughs> not, not in a sexy way, um, about turning up to a gig with just an amp and a cable, yeah. just to see how I'd get on. Like a bass player. Yeah, yeah, like, like you do. Like I do, yeah. yeah. Um, I have a tuner, I'll have you know. 
yeah. but that's only a relatively new addition. I used to just yeah tune to guitars and that was it. Less things to go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't... The thing is, is that, like, ACDC style of music is perfect for that minimalist setup. Um, and if you had to do anything, you know, anything a bit more involved in terms of textures and, yeah. and whatnot, you might, you, you know, you, you might struggle a little bit. But being able... I think it's a sign of mastery of your instrument mm. you know if you can make a gig work with just a guitar and an amp then you know you're you, you're doing something right you need to take you it know. to the extreme though and have like a single pickup guitar yeah yeah just an amp a lead not even a tune well maybe a tuner and then just see what you can get from it yeah yeah i bet you could do it well you know i, I think you know, you, you can get a, you know, with a tone control, you can get a surprising variety mm. of, of tones out of a single pickup guitar. Um, yeah, I mean, but, you know, Malcolm Young, it goes without saying, is the master of the rhythm guitar. Yep, he certainly is. Um, Cliff Williams, do you want to have a, yeah, have I mean, a chat about his bass gear? So Cliff Williams had only been in the band for about a year or so, hadn't he? When yeah. they recorded this, he wasn't the original bass player. And for most of the time now, when you look at Cliff Williams, he's using the Music Man Stingray. He's got his own signature yeah. model, like four grand or something like that, which is, Music Man's ridiculously well, expensive anyway. I'm going to say, Malcolm Young's signature model is great value for money in comparison to that. I know, yeah, it is about four grand. But um, I think on this... According to the live footage, um, he's using a Fender Precision. Yep. Um, your kind of classic rock bass. So live, he used flats. So flat one strings give a much more even tone, less top end. But from stuff that I've read, he uses round round strings live, but he's still got a very kind of flat tone as well. And I think that's to do with how he plays it. If you've got yeah. a Precision, you've got one pickup, a volume and a tone control. There's not really much variation you're going to get out of it over and above how you hit the strings. And I think he dampens them a lot. And I'm going to say compression. I think he does it so that it evens the tone out. You dampen it down. It's the same when you play guitar, isn't it? If you're, if you're not dampening, your strings could be different volumes, maybe across them, or depending on how hard you hit the strings. But if you dampen the strings, which is putting the palm of your hand just near the bridge when you're playing, it evens the tone out. And I think it fattens the tone up a little bit as well. I don't think he has it on all the time. It's just certain parts of songs where he'll sort of dampen a little bit. But yeah, he'd, I haven't seen him play a precision bass in a, in a concert for a while. So the one that he had, black, tortoiseshell guard, rosewood neck, dot inlays, a finger rest, which I don't think anybody's ever used in the history of precision <laughs> as a finger rest. Um, yeah, and then which didn't move around because I think they, they kind of shifted position and they had it as a thumb rest at some point. Um, I think they just, people like them just for the authenticity, don't they? Yeah. Tortoiseshell pick guards, um, probably post, yeah, it's probably, it's early to mid 60s. Yeah, dating these guitars, I, I, I've tried to date this guitar and, it, and There's no good image of yeah, it, is there, for no. you to be able to do it? Yeah. Um, I think this is probably one of the last times that you used the, the, the precision bass because. The Stingray was coming out at this time, another Leo Fender guitar. And from sort of, you know, about 80 onwards, you can generally see him using one of those. Um, a very different sounding bass, though, is the Stingray. The Precision's very, you know, straight, 
down the middle type of thing to do a job in a band, which is what the bass does, isn't it? In yeah. ACDC, it's not there to be fancy. Is is the like that. is the Stingray a bit more weighty in sound? Uh, well, it's got a preamp in it, so it can be, but it's got loads of top end on it as well. Like right. I've had a couple of Stingrays, and you've got to tame the top end on it, otherwise it ends up having too much of like a top end like presence. It's just too much, and you don't need it. So I used to really battle against dialing those out. Um, those top end kind of frequencies in it. They are a very, they have a very specific sound as well. No other bass sounds like those. It's a great sound. They used a lot in metal actually because it fits metal, um, like a metal sound very well. Amp wise, no surprise, no yep. surprise that the guitarist using Marshall. Uh, Ampeg SVT, eight ten cabs, and some footage I've seen around the time. He's got two next to each other. And then a head on top of each of these cabs, and then one laid across the top of the amp heads as well. Um, so that's quite a lot of speakers pushing yeah. out quite a lot, <laughs> especially when you look how close they stand to the speakers as well. Yeah. It's not like Angus Young, you know, front stage, and you know he's kind of moving around, and there is a bit of distance. You know, you've seen them live, Malcolm Young, yeah. Cliff Williams. They stand back next to the drum riser, don't they? Move forward in unison, yeah. like some kind of choreographed dance to do the backing vocals and then get back where they are so they've got it right behind them yeah that's like where that um trouser flapping comes from i think for when they're talking about bass yeah. sounds uh on the front of the album you can see it's an ampeg just behind yeah. bon scott you know you can see the logo um although on the on the cover he's got a can of beer on top of the amped which i what? don't agree with well, it's a risky business, is that, isn't it, really? For health and safety reasons. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's a minefield. Um, yeah, so just industry standard bass amps. I think when we looked at last episode was Holy Bible, Nicky Y yeah. used them. Um, there was another one as well, Weezer. They had an Ampeg yeah. cab as well. So I think this will crop up a lot along the way when we're doing yeah. it. They're just those workhorse amps. And as I've said time and again now, you don't need a particularly sophisticated bass sound if you're in a rock band, especially no. if you've got two guitarists. You are there to perform a function. It's yeah. not unless, you know, if you're in a band like Primus or something like that, you know, you might have a bit more going on um, effects-wise, but no surprise, no effects that I can see any evidence of. Yeah. Guitar to amp or amps and cabs, and that's it. Yeah. It's all you need. I think yeah. a lot of it is just the way he plays, how it's dampened, and just the style of how they play as well, the way the bass and the drums fit together. It doesn't need to be complicated, but it has a very specific role within that band. I, th I think, you know, Malcolm Young gets a lot of credit for his uh, rhythm playing, but I think Cliff Williams equally, you know, as one third of that rhythm section, deserves equal amounts of credit and mm. praise for, you know, his bass playing. Because... It, it takes an incredible amount of discipline, I mm. imagine, to play the simple stuff. It's just the restraint of it as well. I remember seeing an interview with Kim Deal from Pixies. Yeah. And she was talking about how she's seen people play Where Is My Mind? And the baseline to that is four notes, no fills, none of it's pushed. There's no lead up to notes. There's nothing. And she says, I've seen people play and they just can't handle doing it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like they get to a point and think, well, I'm going to have to put a fill in because I've been playing the same thing for the last three minutes. So you don't need to do it. You just play it. And this is, you know, this is yeah. like what he does. Yeah. Some things just need to be straight and let everything else do all the fancy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I tell you what, right, if 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 I could have, you know, a 40-odd year career 
playing these songs <laughs> yeah. night after night, you know, just playing them right and not over embellishing anything or overthinking anything, no. I'd, I'd be well up for that. There are bits in it though. It does venture. There are some bits which yeah. step outside. Oddly enough, it's on some of the songs which are pre him joining. Right. They've got right. a little bit more to them at times. But um, yeah, for the most part, it's there to fulfill a function. It's never a lead instrument. I can't think of a point within an ACDC song, apart from that middle bit of Sin City where it's just a bass and drums on its own. Yeah. And maybe some of the stuff in the 80s, maybe it stepped forward a bit, but it's in no way an instrument that's used as a main feature of no. the song, is it? I mean, he did miss a trick with that Sin City um, drum bass breakdown. I mean, he could have done some slap bass in the middle of that and totally wowed wah, the crowd. Wah bass, he could yeah. put a little wow yeah. on it. Yeah. Um, octave pedal. Yeah. I mean, that, that's our loss, really. <laughs> You know when you you know when you just to um, go from the tangent. You know when you you do an exam at school mm. and you come out of it and you're thinking, I think I did all right on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy with that. This is how I feel about my drum research. All right, Phil Rudd. <laughs> there's an interview with Dean DeLeo. Do you know who Dean DeLeo is? Uh, Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah, there's quite a lengthy yeah. interview with him that's just gone on to YouTube with what interviewed by one of your favorite people. Yeah. And um, he talks at great length about the basses used, the guitars used, and the whole recording process of those. And then the question is, and what drums was you know, <laughs> Eric using at the time? And he's, and he's like, I don't know. <laughs> maybe that's a, maybe he does know a little bit more. But it's just funny how you know drummers tend to want to play guitar, don't they? Like a lot yeah. of drummers can play guitar and they know a bit about them. But you ask most guitarists about drums, they're just like, I have absolutely no idea. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I've, I I think of all uh, the musicians in ACDC, Phil Rudd has given me cause to go deeper than right. I think I've I've ever gone before, especially on a on a drummer. Um, so details are very thin on the ground as to which drums Phil Rudd was playing in Glasgow on the thirtieth of April, nineteen seventy eight. However, this much we do know: Phil Rudd has played sonar drums forever. And you can see it on the cover, can't you? Yeah, yeah. You can see the the, the sonar label on the, uh, the 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 kick drum on the on the cover, and he was photographed on numerous occasions in performance during the Powerage World Tour of 1978. From these contemporaneous images, we have gleaned the following: um, firstly, that the drum kit is constructed using transparent material that appears to be slightly tinted, and secondly, that the kit in question is possibly one of two models that sonar. Uh, made. Um, it's either the Sonor Champion Smoky Acrylic Drum Kit or the Sonor Phonic Smoky Acrylic Drum Kit, uh, both of which were first introduced in 1975 as part of Sonor's centenary year. But which is it? Um, centenary? Yeah. Blimey. Yeah. Been around a long time. Um, but which is it? I hear you ask. Which is it? I hear you ask. Thanks. Um <laughs> The long and short of it is, I haven't got a clue. Right. Um, but I will say this. Trying to identify a drum kit, a specific drum kit, is really hard, especially transparent ones, uh, in predominantly old, grainy, black and white photos where the focus is generally anywhere other than the drum kit, um, usually on the lead singer or the lead guitarist. It's boring, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It's static, isn't it? You know, it's like, you know, yeah. I think... The excitement is where things are moving. Um, 
However, um, based on the following pieces of information and research, I will attempt to make an educated guess, which could be dangerous of me. You know, I could get it wrong, but I'm willing to take that risk. Let's see what happens. Yeah, let's be brave. Um, the transparent sonar kit first appeared on the Let There Be Rock tour in 1977, uh, in April of 1977, and was still used at the end of the Powerage tour in October 1978. So I'm going to assume two things. Firstly, that Rudd used the same kit throughout these tours. And secondly, that he got the kit brand new in 1977. Those endorsements kicking in. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. In the 1977 Sonar catalogue, there's a transparent phonic kit with an established 1875 badge featured on the Racton. This was unique to the phonic range at that time. Um, A very similar looking badge can be seen uh, only just on Phil Rudd's Rack Tom from a photo taken of him performing in 1978, in September of 1978, to be precise. Um, assuming that the kit was brand new in 1977, then it couldn't be any other sonar badge or any other range, including the Champion range, which had a different badge on the on the drums. So I'm going to assume that this one kit, which he got new in 1977 performed on the Let There Be Rock tour through 77 and then on Powerage through 78 up until the tour um, for If You Want Blood where the kit changes to like a mahogany sort of coloured kit. You have done well on this, Uh, haven't you? I don't know how you got the patience. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it's it's the um, Sonophonic uh, Smoky Acrylic Kit. Um, drum sizers Rudd was using a six piece kit on the Powerage tour which comprised two rack toms two floor toms and a kick drum uh, obviously and a snare I haven't been able to find out what size of drums that he was using on that particular tour but for the Highway to Hell tour the following year in 1979 it's been said uh, in foreign land that Rudd was using uh, the following sizes a 22 by 14 inch bass drum uh, rack toms were 12 by 9, 13 by 10, and 14 by 11. His floor toms on that tour were 16 by 16, and 18 by 18, and a 14 by 5.5 inch snare. Um, you'll note that an extra tom was added to the kit for the 79 tour. Um, Didn't, is it Chris Slade who's drum? Yeah. Didn't he have two big bass drums either side of him? I think gimmicky. Yes, I think he did. Right. Yeah. 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 Sorry. Yeah, no, no, great drummer Chris Slade. Doesn't quite have the swing that no. Phil Rudd has, but great nonetheless. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's safe to assume that um, as far as drum sizes, Rudd was using the same sizes on the 78 tour. Just the only difference being, being that extra rack tom. So you can take away, I would imagine, either the 12 by 9 or the 14 by 11 tom. Um, and with that configuration would be somewhere near to the kit that uh, that he was using on that uh, in 1978. Um, snare drum-wise, um, it's unlikely that Rudd was using his favourite snare of all time, which is the Sonar Horst Link Signature Brass model, uh, because that particular drum didn't enter production until 1982. So I would have to guess um, that he was using the Sonar Phonic snare drum, which obviously would have come with the Phonic kit. It's been uh, documented that he uses Remo drum heads. Um, I'm not sure if that was the case 
1978, but currently is using coated emperors on the batter, coated ambassadors on the resonant. I'm assuming this will mean something to drummers. Um, <laughs> and clear, controlled sound over a hazy ambassador on the snare. Um, Phil's known for having a clear dot snare head. Yeah. So there you go. That mean that none of that means anything to me. I can imagine that the batter is the top skin and the resonant is the bottom skin. All oh, right. That's what I'm going to yes. guess. Yes, that's probably. What, that's what I'm going to guess. Um, symbols wise, Phil Rudd has is, is, is used pastes, pa- pasty. I've no idea. I've always said paste. I'm so. going to say pasty because I've heard right, other okay. people say that, so I'm yeah. going to get a bit fruity. Come on then. And uh, so uh, Rudd currently uses pasty symbols and has done since the early eighties. What he was using in 1978 and which sizes, again, aren't known, at least not to me. But it looks to my untrained eye like he was using four crashes, a ride and hats. But I cannot find a single photo from this period of a symbol Phil Rudd is hitting with any branding on it. Um, All the photos I found, it's just, they're just plain symbols. Like, no, don't say Zildjian, don't say Paiste, don't say Alt. So. Yeah, paste. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, sticks. Um, Phil Rudd is a long-time user of Eastern sticks. Um, whether or not he was using these on that particular tour, I do not know. Hmm? And lastly, uh, but not least, Bon Scott, who uh, looks very much like he was using an SM58. And the tightest jeans you have ever seen in your life. Well, you've got to get those high notes somehow, haven't exactly. you? Exactly. You know. It's unbelievable. It is. It is unbelievable. It's It's... What's unbelievable is the contrast between the top end of the gene and the bottom end of the gene, because the top end is like... Surgical. As tight <laughs> as you could possibly get, and the bottom end are, are mm-hmm. just flapping around. I know. It's, yeah, it's a unique look. Like Robert Plant, he came pretty close in some of those pictures. Not that yeah. I've studied men's genes in great detail from the 70s, but, you know, it's difficult sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> it, it well, you know, sometimes it's hard not to look, isn't it? Um, Make some broccoli. Yeah, <laughs> just took it, took your flares into your boots and emptied the juice out at the end of the kick. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, should we have a little? Um, yeah, I'm going to go for the kettle break. on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So looking at um, GlasgowApollo.com, the set list from the performance on 30th of April 1978 is uh, is up there. And I don't know, it might surprise some people to find that the set list was actually in a different running order to the tracks that are listed on the album. Right. So um, on the night, um, you would have been witness to the, the opening tune being Riff Raff, which of course it is on the album. Yeah. Um, but then that was followed by Problem Child, Hell ain't a bad place to be. Rock and roll damnation. Bad boy boogie. Dog eat dog, um, which didn't appear on the album, but did appear later on the backtracks box set. Right. 
followed by the jack, high voltage, whole lot of rosé, uh, a whole lot of rosé. Sorry, I sound so middle class. Rosé. It's a whole lot of rosé, you know. Uh, Let There Be Rock, Fling Thing, which was something that I think they only did in Scotland. Right. Um, it's like it's like their version of a traditional Scottish Highland Fling. Highland fling right, okay. Folk song. Followed by The Rocker, and then... It said that um, they played "Give Me a Bullet" in soundcheck, but obviously right. there's no recording of that. Okay. Um, so "Rocker" was the last song of the night. So there are, there are twelve songs in the set list, which seems quite short by today's standards. It's enough for me. Do you reckon? Yeah, I don't like an overly long set when I go see a band. You don't Maybe feel, twelve might be a bit. Yeah, but you don't feel shortchanged. Like if they're if they're on stage for like just over an hour. An hour's all right. Really? Yeah. Oh, I like a good 90 minute at least. 90 minutes plus on course. I want a film to be an hour and a half. Uh, A book needs to be 400 pages and a gig an hour, maybe an hour and 15 with on course. That's quite precise. Otherwise I get bored. Right, okay. No matter how good they are. (laughs) None of this Bruce Springsteen four hours. Well, you you could have gone to the toilet and peed on your own shoes (laughs) just for a bit of a break. This is true. So the album running order it is obviously different to uh, the running order of the of the set list on the night. Why the changing running order? Well, what works live might not work on vinyl, in terms of you know the the dynamic of the show overall. Um, for example, Problem Child was played second on the night, um, which is a great it's a great song for keeping up the intensity of the of the opening. Um, and just maintaining that level of, of, of excitement for the audience, but it's placed fifth on the uh, in the running order for the album, which would make it the last song on side one, mm. um, which makes it a great closer, great closer for the first side. Yeah, um, which which is not something that we think about these days, really. You know, like in terms of running orders, and you know, we don't think about the vinyl format so much. So you know, you need. A song at the end of the first side that's going to make you want to flip to the second side, and I think you know, Problem Child, for this album is is obviously that song. Also, um, there's only- reckon, sorry, you know, because if you're taking songs out of the overall live set, yeah, it's going to change the feel of it all, isn't it? So you're going to have to rearrange things because usually in your edge you've got yeah. a little flow, haven't you? About you know, peaks, troughs. Couple yep. of quieter ones, sort of dotted around where it seems appropriate. Yeah, um, and obviously they're thinking primarily vinyl. It all needs to fit on vinyl. Yeah. So once you're trimming your songs down to however many it was, did you say ten? You're gonna have to yep. maybe jig them about a bit so that you get a good flow and it's it fits over two sides. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, as you've just alluded to, there's only so many minutes. Mm available on each side of the vinyl so you know songs do have to be omitted switched around shortened um edited you know in in the case of whole lot of rosie and rocker both of these songs were shortened Mm. from the original performance to accommodate um, the restrictions probably of the vinyl format he probably did more longer you know he does his guitar solo widdly bits on his own doesn't he yeah maybe there were more of those as well which were taken out well the um we do know as I'll get into, that Rocker was in initially like significantly longer than it appears on the album um, to accommodate one of Angus Young's lengthy guitar solos and forays into the audience. Um, 
So, as mentioned earlier, Bon Scott stated in an interview with Jay Crawford on Radio 4, uh, which I believe is in Edinburgh, I think, um, that he was pretty sure that the whole album was taken from the Glasgow Apollo performance, with the exception of Whole Lot of Rosie, which we will get into in a minute. Now, can, can Bon Scott's assertion that, um, you know, most of the album was taken from that performance be tested? Um, yes, it can, to a point. And how um, are we going to do with that? Well... I'm glad you asked. That's like my catchphrase for today. Um, uh, the Glasgow Apollo show was filmed by a Dutch TV station and various clips and snippets of this footage have appeared not only on official ACDC releases over the years, uh, such as the Family Jewels box set and the Plug Me In DVD, um, but also there are bootleg versions of the performance on uh, on YouTube. So, yeah, thankfully YouTube is a thing and excerpts are all readily available for us to compare the performances captured on film with the performances that ended up on the album. So the whole concert was apparently filmed, but it's never been released in its entirety. Um, footage of the following songs performed on the night have so far been made available. So we've, we've got footage for Riff Raff, Bad Boy Boogie, Rock and Roll Damnation, Let There Be Rock, Fling Thing slash Rocker, the long version, mm-hmm. um, and Dog Eat Dog. Okay. Um, so they're the six songs, or seven if you include Fling Thing, for which we have definite footage from the night, which leaves the following songs unreleased on video and unavailable for comparison. Um, Hell Ain't A Bad Place To Be, The Jack, Problem Child, Whole Lot Of Rosie and High Voltage. So if we, if we start with the songs that we've got footage for, we can definitely say that Riff Raff is the same performance. So the performance that Dutch TV captured is the, is the performance that appears on the album. And there's a few giveaways for this. Um, bon Scott's vocal phrasing um, and all his little ad-lib vocals yeah. are the same, which are, which are not things that generally get repeated in the same place at the same time on the night. Because otherwise, what would be the point of doing multiple dates? You know, if you're just going to do it exactly the same, yeah. you know. There's also things like little incidental moments, like there's a blast of feedback um, on the line, boss man trying to tell me, which is next to impossible to reproduce. Yeah. They're the bits that jump out as in, yeah. in live, um, live versions of songs as being unique, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also... Um, Guitar solo is note for note, with exactly the same phrasing. And, and Angus Young never played exactly the same solo twice. And there are bootlegs from May the 5th, um, shortly, you know, the week after in Newcastle and May the 6th in Manchester that bear this out. Mm. You know, you can hear the, more or less the same set list being played differently right. both nights. Uh, the next one, Bad Boy Boogie, um, again, same performance, same tells really, um, you know, little blasts of feedback here and there. There's one uh, after the second chorus going into the breakdown during the first guitar solo. Um, there's an audience cheer at one point in the guitar solo, which appears at exactly the same point, mm. which would be impossible to replicate. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the vocal phrasing, guitar solos, all that stuff, it's it's all it's it all matches. Same for Rock and Roll Damnation. It's exactly the same performance. Uh, vocal ad-libs before the first verse and a, there's a choked note at the end of the guitar solo, which is unintentional. So it's unlikely that mm. Angus Young would want to do that again. You know, so it, it, it's obvious that that is the same performance just from those two things. Let There Be Rock, 
Again, same performance. There's feedback right at the very start when the drums come in, vocal feedback in the second verse, and the guitar solos again, a, a note for note. Phrasing is perfectly the same. Rocker is the same performance mostly, because as we know, the version that was performed on the night was... Edit. Was it that kind of edit? Yeah, it's, it's a longer version, yeah. and also it's segues from Fling Thing into Rocker. So for the most part, it's the same performance. Um, there's some feedback in the intro, which is a little giveaway, um, a slightly misfretted note at the end of the guitar solo. The place where it differs is the end of the song on the album. The ending doesn't match either the false ending from the Apollo performance before the extended guitar solo began, or the actual ending to the song that appears on the TV footage. Um, the guitars don't entirely match. There's a drum fill on the album that isn't, played on the video. Um, bon Scott, on the album, his final words are see you later. And on the Apollo performance, on the video, his final words are good night. Right. So they've obviously taken the end of another live performance and just grafted it on to the Apollo performance. See, this is why I don't trust live albums. <laughs> Do you know what I mean, though? Yeah. Yeah. Well... The thing is, is that the, the the idea of doing a live album appeals to everyone because it's, well, you know, live is what we're about. You know, this is mm. where people can see the real us. But there's always mistakes and I musicians know. always want to correct their mistakes. Apparently Live and Dangerous is a huge culprit for the overdubs, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I've, I've read somewhere that that's 70% live. 30% overdubbed. I read it was the other way around. All oh, right, 30% so <laughs> maybe I've, maybe I've remembered that wrong. But yeah, I did read that it was the other way around, so... Um, but yeah. yeah, and even live after death, there's some very tidy backing vocals on that. Yeah, and yeah. I know Adrian Smith's a good singer, isn't he? But yeah. not so much Steve Harris. Maybe less so. Yeah. So I'm really dubious about live after death as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, there are some comments in forum land about the backing vocals on this album, and I can imagine that you know if you've got an open mic in front of Malcolm Young's amps. Angus Young's amps and Cliff Williams' amps, they're picking up bleed, all it. that bleed. Yeah. So, you know, the, the BVs aren't going to be the tidiest, I don't think. No. Um, I think there's, talking about live albums, there's a Judas Priest one. I'm not a Judas Priest fan, so I can't, I don't know which one it is, but they recorded it as live, but the vocal mic, there was some issue with the track. Right. So he just did it in the studio in one take. It might not have even been a studio. They might have done it in somebody's house or something like that. Right. And he just did it from beginning to end and re-recorded it. Tart it up a bit and there you go. Yeah, yeah. Add yeah. a few effects and you've got a, a live vocal track. So, yeah, yeah. that is that is why whenever it says live, I always think, well, hmm, yeah, well, let's, yeah. let's have a listen and see if it's too perfect. Because <laughs> like you're saying, there's always going to be stuff that's not quite yeah. right. Unless unless you're uh, Husker Du on yeah. one speed record, yeah, which is... <laughs> Uh, guaranteed 100% live. <laughs> yeah. Mistakes and all. So what about the rest of the tracks on uh, If You Want Blood? Well, first of all, um, if you go by Spotify, what Spotify says, um, Spotify lists all the songs as being recorded at the Glasgow Apollo. Um, but we know that this isn't necessarily true, as we shall discover shortly. Um, the Jack is the first of the remaining songs that I will address. Um I'm pretty sure this one was recorded at the Glasgow Apollo because after the line, she told me she was a virgin, which is a quintessential Bon Scott dodgy <laughs> lyric, really, if you think. <laughs> yeah. There's not many more dodgy than that. Um, 
Bond squat and Bond squat. Yeah, <laughs> he'd better not squat in those jeans. Jesus. Um, Bond Scott inquires of the audience, any virgins in Glasgow? To which the answer was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a resounding no. So Sorry, that wasn't very nice. No, no. But metal fans, though. Not t- late 70s, heavy rock fans. Yeah, yeah. If you go by the thing that the band are usually more attractive than their audience. <sighs> Jesus Christ. Don't, don't bear it's well a, it's for the It's quite audience. a valid question, it. actually. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, the fact that he says any virgins in Glasgow kind of nails it on that he's in Glasgow at the time. He's not going to say that in Liverpool, is he? No. He's not going to be like. I wouldn't have thought so. Yeah, excuse me, Liverpoolians. I don't, you wouldn't happen to know if there are any virgins <laughs> in Glasgow, would you? So yeah, so I'm pretty sure that that's taken from the Glasgow Apollo. Um, hell ain't a bad place to be. I'm not hundred percent sure about this being from the Glasgow Apollo um, performance. And the reason is this. I think it's made up of two separate performances or it's been overdubbed in the mixed process. And the reason I think that is that up to the 1 minute 17 mark, up to where Bon Scott sings the line, um, that ain't the way it should be, the following distinctions can be made with the remainder of the song. So the drums in the first minute and 17 seconds um, uh, just sound more direct in particular the snare drum, which sounds like it's got a lot more body to it. Um, The bass guitar has more upper-mid presence, and the guitars have more mid-frequency content and less high-end presence. If you put your headphones on and cut between the first and second verses, you will hear some definite differences. So I'm going to put my neck on the block and say that this is two different performances that have been stitched Mm. together for whatever reason. Um... You know, maybe there was a bit of a howler, a bit of a mistake, or maybe there was a technical, yeah, mis- you know, malfunction or whatever. But going back to the bass thing that you pointed out, he plays one note for the entire first minute and 15 seconds. He's just pedaling on one note. So yeah, it's possible that, you know, that just change it. Mind you, what I've just gone back, what I said about him trying to da- compress the sound by dampening and stuff. That sort of figures into you thinking, well, oh, that's a change in sound. Maybe it must be a different track, possibly. Yeah, well, I, th- I think, it, you know, it, it's the overall mm. sound. It's the combination of everything um, that culminates in something that's that just, to me, to my ears, sounds different. I might be wrong, but I, 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 there's just something about it that, that jumps out to me, especially when you jump between the mm. first and second verses and, um, you, you know, you can hear them... Uh, separately from one another. Um, Problem Child and High Voltage, I, I, I would say, share the same sonic characteristics of the songs uh, we already know were taken from the Glasgow Apollo performance, particularly Problem Child, which, you know, as we've mentioned, was the second song performed after the opener Riff Raff. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Problem Child and High Voltage were recorded at Glasgow Apollo. There's just nothing about them that jumps out that says, mm. you know, this is a different gig right. um, with different acoustics, different audience, different ambience and all that. It just it just feels like the same stuff, which leaves us with uh, possibly the best-known track from If You Want Blood. It's probably the most... It's one of the most well-known live tracks, ironically, isn't it? Because mm. of, like, you know, the chanting at the beginning. Yeah. And it's like a definitive ACDC song, isn't it? It's definitely the first one that I recall ever hearing. Yeah. And this version of it is the is, is the one that most people, or I'm definitely the most familiar with, Yeah. the version of it through. And if you, if you were to play this in a club 
or on a gig, there would be a part of the audience who have got the Angus Angus thing. Yeah. It would just spring to mind straight away, yeah. wouldn't it? I remember um, when I was learning to play guitar, I asked my guitar teacher at the time to teach me the solo to a whole lot of Rosie. And bizarrely, for reasons that are unknown to me, he learnt the version off Let There Be Rock. All right. So he showed you and you're like, that's not it. Yeah, and I, <laughs> he showed me the he showed me the solo. I was like, no, that's not it. That's not right. And like, because this version is for most people, myself included, mm. the definitive version. Yeah. Um, Should have just said, learn a blue scale in A. Yeah. Off you go. Yeah. Yeah. You'll be fine. Um, all of which is is like you say, quite ironic because uh, this track isn't even close to being a live performance. <laughs> Do you know what? Um, the, how they get away with it? I think. Go on. The um, if you want blood is slightly sharp, isn't it? Yep. All of it. Yeah. And I think that's done on purpose, isn't it, to yep. give it a bit more energy. Yeah. But also, if you actually to the untrained ear like yours, if you played the studio version of All That Rose and you played this live one, they sound completely different. Yeah. Tone, uh, not tone wise, kind of like pitch wise. Yeah. So you, it wouldn't be immediately apparent, would it? No. No. And I'll be really honest with you until revisiting this album because I've not listened to it for quite a while and then becoming aware of the facts that Whole Lotta Rosie is not actually live, I'd never even noticed. Yeah, yeah. In all those years since first yeah. hearing it. And and it's amazing what, you know, first of all, the, the, the first thing that you hear is Angus. Yeah. Angus. And it's that crowd participation that, Immediately makes your brain go, oh, this is a live recording. Yeah. It's like smoke and mirrors, isn't it? It's yeah. Kind of taking your attention yeah, away. It is, it's diver- <laughs> it's, it's, it's yeah. a diversionary tactic. Because I'd be willing to bet that on the night when they performed the song in the set, the crowd weren't chanting Angus. I, I'm, I'll, I'll, hmm. I'm willing to bet that that chant of Angus, you know, probably came at the end of the night when the band have, had yeah. gone off stage, you know. Yeah. Uh, and they wanted him to come back out and play some more, you know. So other other tells that you know, as as well as changing the, the you know the the pitch, speeding it up a bit. Other tells that it's not a live performance. Uh, um, the vocal performance is a really similar but quite subtly different take um, with slightly different phrasing, mm-hmm. uh, different melodies, different note choices. Um, but it's a hundred percent recorded in a studio, um, and you can tell this because. Bon Scott's delivery, it's more dynamic and relaxed. And the reason for that is that he's not having to scream his knackers off in front of, you know, rows of martial amps. Mm. The um, album version, though, sounds like a vocal guide track, doesn't it? You yeah, know, like it's yeah. really the like the one that was on the, you know, the original recorded version. The vocals are so relaxed on the verse. Yeah. 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 You, you know, you can just tell by the way that he's phrasing things that he's not in a live performance. Mm. Which, speaking of Bon Scott's vocals, if you listen to uh, the bootlegs that I mentioned before online in Newcastle uh, and and Manchester that were recorded the week following this, uh, this particular performance, Bon Scott's delivery on the line, you could say she's got it all. Hernia-inducing. <laughs> leaves a lot to be desired in terms of, yeah. you know, it literally screeches it. Yeah. And... I can imagine that for that reason alone, they would want to, you know, at least overdub it. Mm. Well, my dad's you know. band who played in Clubland, yeah. they did this song for a short amount of time. Yeah. And you know why they stopped playing it live? Go on. Because of the vocals. Yeah. 
Musically, yeah. it's really straightforward, but it's just too high. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. Where do you put it in the set? At the beginning yeah. when you've got everything and then you just kind of you ruin your voice yeah. for the rest of the gig yeah. or do you put it near the end when you've got nothing left because you've been singing for an hour and a half yeah so it's a tricky yeah i mean we've mentioned before how you know sometimes vocal lines within songs when you're recording it in a studio they make a lot of sense and they sound good but give it 12 months of touring in yeah. amongst a set it's going to take its toll in it and it's one of those songs where for the first verse, at least, you could knock it out. But by, by the second verse, you're fucked. Yeah. Your voice is just gone, you know. It's, yeah. it's, you can't maintain that sort of mm. level of vocal performance at that high pitch. It's just it's, it's just puts an enormous strain. It's like Do they tune down it, now when they play it? I haven't heard... I don't really listen to ACDC now with Brian Johnson. I just wondered how he approaches it. I know he's got quite a, a distinct voice, but... yeah. I just wondered how they did it. He, he, funnily enough, you know, Brian Johnson has a similar vocal range right. to Bon Scott. The way that he sings, obviously, is a lot different. The mechanics of how he creates his his mm. voice, how he gets his voice into singing mode, you can you can hear that like there's something going on in Brian Johnson's throat that isn't going on in Bon Scott's yeah. Throat. You can hear that technically they are very different singers, but in terms of range, they are... One of the so, reasons why I ask as well is, you know the um, Taylor Hawkins tribute concert? Yeah. Lars Ulrich's playing drums on a ACDC song, isn't he? Did he do Back in Black? I don't know. Did he, did he simplify it at all? <laughs> but, <laughs> probably. <laughs> but the, um, the, they, they were tuned down a whole tone. Right. That. So right. it's an E, isn't it? Let's say it's an E. It might not be musically correct that it's an E, but it's let's say it's an E because it starts on that. Yeah. I remember watching it and it's they're all the the down the whole tone from what right. I can recall. Right. So I just wondered. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. So yeah, um the other tell for me is the guitar solo, um, which is a different take, but tonally and sonically it's really close to the guitar solo on Let There Be Rock. And they've been quite crafty as well, because during the solo, they've omitted the second rhythm guitar track. Right. For, you know, the, oh, yeah, yeah. So on the I'm original studio version, while the solo's playing, there are two rhythm guitar tracks, one in each speaker. Well, they've taken one out for the allegedly live version just to give it that sort of sense of, well, you know, Angus Cap playing rhythm as well because yeah, he's now of, doing a solo, you know. You know. drop out, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So, they, so, so they've, you know, they've done that as well. The track is shorter than the album version and with the second guitar solo being cut off but listening to bootlegs from the time the band did perform the full version live, um, so my guess would be that the second solo was cut off to accommodate the time restrictions mm. of the vinyl format yeah. for both the album and the single. I wonder how much you can fit on a push onto vinyl. Um, I think it's about 25 minutes. Per side? Maybe 25 to 30 minutes per right, side, okay. yeah. Right, okay. So, yeah, so, it, you know, this the, the other... Key factor in this was that a whole lot of Rosie was the the single from the album. Mm-hmm. Now they've obviously got to shorten because the, the the single format is what four and a half minutes tops, mm. maybe something oh, like yeah. that. So you know they've obviously got to shorten um, you know a five or six minute song to to fit it onto one side of uh, seven inch vinyl, which kind of brings me on to another motivation for trying to pass off a studio recorded song as a live song and that is that it's more likely to get airplay mm. as a single 
because it's more polished. Yep. And 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 no feedback. No feedback. Nothing. No screaming. No Iconic wailing. Angus bit at the beginning, which is quite radio friendly, as a, yeah. a gimmicky type thing, isn't it? Yeah. So you know, again, once again, we're back in that world of record company execs wanting a more hi-fi sound for for the lead single. Because um, because at the time, um, you know, ACDC were really busy trying to break America, mm-hmm. and they were they were they were making inroads, but you know, FM radio, college radio just massive aspects of breaking america is getting that airplay mm. there and and i don't think that really any other song from this album would have done that job in no. in the format that it was recorded yeah because it just just doesn't have that fm radio sound you know <laughs> So, um, shall we have a chat about some of the highlights from the album? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, to be honest, I say highlights. For me, the whole album is a highlight. But we'll start at the beginning, shall we? Which is a very good place to start, as Julie Andrews said. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Um, riff Raff. It's my favourite ACDC riff. It's a great riff. but it, And it's quite unlike anything else on the album. Or yeah. There are other stuff in it. It's really busy. Yeah. Um, you know, it's got all the hallmarks of in you know in the chorus and stuff like that, which is typical ACDC. But that riff is is way busier than anything else they do. Yeah, and and also it's kind of, I mean, it starts out as a classic kind of old school rock and roll riff, but then they extend it slightly. You know, bumba dagger 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 dagger, and yeah. they add that dagger yeah, in that there. First bit's just like uh, yeah, and it, and it just makes it something entirely different. And then, of course, with the bam, bam, bam in between, it just accentuates, you know, what what a great riff it is, you know. I find the intro a bit off-putting, you know, like when he's doing on his own and then the yeah. audience start clapping. Yeah. And it feels like it goes out of time. Yeah. I think it would have brought the school teacher and me out, like, yeah. shh. Yeah. Bruce Springsteen... Uh, if you're you, not going to clap in time, don't clap at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bruce Springsteen used to <laughs> say on, on solo shows, um, please resist the urge to uh, clap along. It's very as it, off-putting. As it will mess around with my already tenuous <laughs> sense of timing. Yeah. Yeah, they do They do go a bit out. Um, it's a good example of how the bass and drums link together straight off, you know, when the main riff yeah. comes in, because Cliff Williams is not playing the same riff as no. the guitars. Can you imagine what it would sound like if he did? Cacophonous. It would be, yeah. it would turn it into something like cartoon music, something very, very yeah. different. So straight off, yeah. it's got that signature sound. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, I don't think it's a song that, that has, you know, appeared on many ACDC greatest hits or best ofs or whatever, you know, if, if they have in fact released any such albums. Um, you know, it, it is essentially an album track, um, yeah. is what I'm saying. But, the, riff, the riff is the star of the show, isn't it? It's not yeah. like, it hasn't got a great chorus, has it? There's no kind of big chorus to it. The vocal delivery in the verses is very kind of 
on one note, isn't it? So yeah. it's not yeah. it's not really a song you remember because of the lyrics yeah. or the performance of the vocal. It's just it's the riff. Yeah. It? And it's it's high energy, high intensity. <clears throat> and you know, as I mentioned earlier, when I was sat on that bus on the way home from Wakefield mm-hmm. listening to this on my Walkman, you know, by the time Angus Hume's first guitar solo cuts in, in. You all in. I'm all in. <laughs> I'm all in. You know, just you know, I, I, Angus Young used to play his SG, like all the rhythm would be done with the volume control on 7 or 8, or right. thereabouts. And as soon as he pulls that volume control on his guitar up to 10 and starts mm. hitting those solo notes, it's just like, wow. Yeah. You know, like, just, you know, it sets his stall out for who he is as a guitarist as well. Yeah. You know, he's, he's playing this high-intensity barroom boogie blues at like breakneck speed all the while running around like a complete nutcase like moving he doesn't look at the fretboard too much does he if you look at him his head's constantly moving he's running around I don't I I don't get how he does it no no I don't either but you know massively massively exciting and impressive and energising and yeah what a great opener I know Um, the school uniform thing has never sat well with me I just, it's just too gimmicky. Yeah. And you look at him yeah. perform live now and he's still doing it like a 60 odd year old bloke in a school uniform. Yeah. It's not, it's not weathered well time wise, is it? But. No, it hasn't. And also, you know, around this time, it was around this time that he was doing this very dubious thing of doing a strip show. Oh, yeah, I remember. Oh, um, God, I forgot about that. Where he would seductively remove his school shirt button yeah. by button. And it then... was a bit time, wasn't it? <laughs> I think that's the first yeah. time that we've said that. Or yeah. maybe the second. Well, but wait till it, we get onto some of the lyrics. Yeah. Well, the, the, the strip show would invariably end with uh, Angus Young mooning the crowd yeah, from the drum riser. I'd forgotten about that, thankfully. Um, and apparently, um, this didn't go over well in America, so they stopped doing it. All right, okay. Um, because I think American humour is... Never seen an ass before. Well, <laughs> I don't think audiences in America were quite accustomed to seeing the, guitar- <laughs> the lead guitarist anus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Midway through the set. Do you know what? It's a fair point when you put it like that. <laughs> I remember going to see Pearl Jam at Sheffield Arena... Um, Did Daddy Vedder get his anus out? <laughs> no, but they had a support band called the Vandals. All right, they're a bit yeah. of a punk band. Yeah, yeah, punkish band, as punk as you can be, playing Sheffield Arena. Yeah, and the lead singer just took all his clothes off and started running around the arena, like wow. all the way. And I remember thinking, that's a confident young man. <laughs> <laughs> Either that, or a or a young man on LSD. Or... Yeah, yeah. When you think about it now, maybe there was something else coming yeah. to play a bit. Yeah, I've never had the urge to, you know, do anything like that on stage. But No, uh, no, me neither. Maybe you should try it. Give it uh, a whirl. You know what, I think I'll pass. Next. Well, I, w- oh, I was going to say about, about Riff Raff, kind of lyrically kind of sets the tone for what Bon Scott is all about as well. Yeah. You know, Angus Young set his stall out guitar-wise. Malcolm Young has with a great riff. Uh, Cliff Williams and Phil Rudd have, you know, as a rhythm section, you know, this song exemplifies everything that's great about ACDC. Um, and lyrically, you know, Bon Scott is talking about... It's not archives of pain, is it? It's not, no, no. It's basically hell-raising rock and roller mm. having fun type stuff, isn't it? Yeah, you know? and there's a place for that. There is, the and 1970s. Yeah, and there's no, well, yeah, this is... Yeah, I mean, it's basically a kind of call to arms for 
people who want to live a, a free existence mm. expressing themselves yeah. however they see fit. Um, you know, and they might be riffraff, riff but they're just here for a good time. Exactly. Exactly. So track two, Hell Ain't a Bad Place to Be. Yeah, a quintessential uh, Bon Scott song title. And we're getting back towards the Bon Scott that, we, uh, that we're that most, <laughs> most familiar with, lyric-wise. <laughs> with the first two lines, yeah. sometimes I think this woman is kind of hot, sometimes I think this woman is sometimes not. Yeah. Um, I like the pause my beer, licks my ear line. Yeah, That's yeah. That's a very good one. Brings out the devil in me. Again, it's that sort of um, 1970s misogynistic rock trope of... You know, women being evil and you know a devil woman and yeah. and treating men badly and um, being a temptress, yeah, and all that. You, <laughs> you know. sound like Alan Partridge. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> Sex. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Lyrically, it's um, basically a, a you know, women bad, booze good. Yeah. Musically, though, it's... Spot on. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Again, it's it's even more ACDC than Riff Raff. Do you reckon? Yeah, I do. Just It's because that guitar line in the verse yeah. is just so choppy. Yeah. And then you've got the bass and the drums doing the same thing. Yeah. Like the bass does exactly the same thing on the same note for the first minute and a half almost until it changes into like a pre-chorus. Um, yeah, I, I just think it's, 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 it's everything ACDC. When, when you think of ACDC, this is the song or this kind of sound is what jumps to mind to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this lyrical content and Bon Scott's delivery, all the little ad-libs, yeah. the woos and stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, it is, um, it is a, a great song. I think one of the things that sort of runs throughout this album that, that I always like, even, you know, when I was a kid, I always sort of tuned in on was... You can tell, like, that it's a live performance because at the volume that Malcolm Young and Angus Young are playing at, you can hear, like, the speakers in the 412 cabs, like, seizing up <coughs> at certain moments because they're being pushed so hard and they're forcing out more air than they can physically right. move, you know. You can you can hear that compression, that amplifier compression, and that's what makes it, like, a really exciting live album for mm. me that that sense of like you know it, it it's exactly how it's recorded exactly how it was performed yeah um the thing i like you know. is the guitars aren't overly distorted are they there isn't that much distortion on the sound it's more just overdriven and how they attack the strings yeah yeah and 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 volume plays a, a mm. you know a, a large part in that you know that sort of you know, Malcolm Young's, as we mentioned earlier, his guitar sound is cleaner than a lot of people think, but it's also got a lot more sustain mm. than people think because the amp is driving so hard. The you more know, distortion you put on, the quieter things sound yeah, sometimes as well, yeah. isn't it? Because well, it really squashes the sound. Yeah. Well, maybe that's why this album sounds, you know, as big as it does for, mm. you know, for, for two guitars because there's that space, Yeah. you know. Next um, quintessential uh, Bon Scott song title, which I think is, I would imagine, I've not seen the lyrics yet, but I would imagine that this is... Shall, I, shall I just surprise you with them? Yeah. Right. I okay. would imagine that this so is... So we a- won't listen to it first, because that's what we do, tend to do before we talk about each one. Yeah. The next one is Bad Boy Boogie. Yeah. 
Um, there's actually I, 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 something that's almost poetic in the first verse. Oh, I, got, I, on the so, day I was born, the on. rain fell down. There was trouble brewing in my hometown. It was the seventh day I was the sixth son. And it scared the hell out of everyone. Why the sixth? I'm not sure. I don't know. I, I would have I would have thought that being the seventh, because the seventh son of a seventh exactly. son. I know, Mr. Trick there. Yeah, I, I think he was one shot. Um, I don't think the six would have scared people half as much as the seventh. But I was about to say that this is, I think this is going to be an autobiographical tune and I'm not, I don't think I'm wrong. Right. So the little bit next, I said stop, I said go, they said fast, I said slow, they said yes, I said no, I do the bad boy boogie. What do you think a bad boy boogie is? Well, it's it's got to involve booze and it's got to involve sex. Yeah. Um, well, let's hope he gets a bit more specific. Yeah, well, you know, if he could give some details, that would help. Right, being a bad boy ain't that bad. I had me more dirty women than most men ever We're had. We're getting into it now. <laughs> All you women come along with me and I'll show you how good a bad boy can be. Hey, <laughs> hey listen, you know, I mean, fair play to, to Bon Scott, right? He wasn't the most handsome, like most of these men in the 70s and 60s singing these lyrics or writing these lyrics. He wasn't mm. the most good-looking guy, uh, it must be said. I mean, he's a very charismatic man, mm. but, you know, not what you would consider to be classically handsome. Maybe it was the tight trousers. Well, you know, I think perhaps there was something in that, yeah. <laughs> Quite literally. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, a couple of things, actually. Um you know, like our birds of paradise have massive feathers, like peacocks, and, yeah. and that you know they have these massive shows of, you know, trying to attract a mate, and the females see these big displays. You know, maybe tight jeans is the male equivalent of mm. peacock feathers. We should bring them back. Yeah, but yeah. again, it's standard ACDC fodder in it. This song that makes it sound yeah. quite. Um, like I'm being dismissive of it, but you know what you're going to get, don't yeah. you? Yeah, you know. <laughs> It's not a Bon Scott era song, but can you remember they brought out a song called uh, Rock and Roll Train? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The review in one of the newspapers just said, this song sounds exactly what a song by ACDC <laughs> called Rock and Roll Train would sound like. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what it's going to be, don't you? Yeah, yeah. You could almost kind of sing it in your head, even though you've never heard it. Yeah. Well, somebody once accused Angus Young of, of um, having ACDC record the same album 12 times, and he said, that's not true, we did it 14 times. Yeah. Well, they know what they're good at, and they they stuck to it. Yeah, it's got the good little. Um, it's got um, a little guitar line leading into the chorus, like a single note guitar line. Yeah, yeah. Which I reckon, if it was Thin Lizzy or Iron Maiden, they would have harmonised those guitars yeah, probably, yeah. wouldn't they? Or they'd have made more of it. Yeah, I reckon the most you get out of ACDCs, they might play them at different octaves. Yeah, yeah. To get that. Yeah, they're not, they're not big ones for major and minor, no. minor thirds. No, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, it's all root, note, and fifth. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, one of the song, one of the things I like about this song is the breakdown for the solo. Mm, it's good, you isn't know, it? It comes down and builds builds up to, you know, that line, you know, being a bad boy ain't that bad. You mm. know, that crescendo is, it'll, you know, for twelve year old me again, still set at the back of the bus because the bus journey's quite long. That crescendo was just like hairs on the back of your neck. An awakening, shall we say. The good thing is, though, you get the thing where they, I call them stabs, you know, like where the drums and the guitar just do like short notes and cymbal hits. Yeah. But they do that, but then they bring a beat in over doing that. You know, so it, but so nothing very much has changed apart from you've got a beat going over yeah. what was um, just stabs before. And I think, oh, well, that sounds really good. You get a really ascending bass line as it builds up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like a 
Tension yeah. and release at yeah. its finest. And, 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 you know, and all the while throughout that, you know, Phil Rudd's just, like you say, just holding it down, mm. playing that 4-4 four, four beat that is so... Um, that is on the face of it so simple, but ACD, you know, when when Phil Rudd left ACDC in the early eighties, ACDC never sounded the same until Phil Rudd rejoined mm. in the mid nineties. Like there was just a massive Phil Rudd shaped hole in that mm. rhythm section, which is, I think, probably why they asked him back. Yeah, because you know um, what he's doing is on the face of it super simple. But in reality, that feel is almost impossible for anyone else to replicate. Mm. It's unique to him. It's like uh, Jimmy Chamberlain smashing pumpkins. Yeah. yeah. That kind of feel. Stephen Adler had it in Guns N' Roses as well. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's kind of got a swing to it. And then they replace them with somebody who, on the face of it, is like a more straight ahead solid drummer. Yeah. But you'll lose that little bit of shift in the feel from yeah. time to time and and the thing that drives acd forward is that sense of swing yeah it's you know in in that sense it is quintessential chuck berry yeah you know where you've got i've got the, chuck berry as as a um, as one of my things for a song later on and it is all the way through it isn't it yeah you've you've got you know you've got the you know you've got the bass line playing it straight and then you've got the um the the ride cymbal like doing a sort of sort of swing kind of thing, you know. And that combination of those two things gives the song forward momentum. Yeah. And, and you know, what Phil Rudd does to these songs is give it forward momentum. Jack. Well, alternate lyrics, isn't it? So, like, the yes, recorded yeah. version had lyrics which were all about a game of cards. That's how I read it. Yeah, that's all it's about. That's all it's, it's just about. A, It's just a really simple game of cards. Yeah. Can you give us some sample lyrics just to, you know... So... Drive that home. She gave me the queen. She yeah. gave me the king. Yeah. She was wheeling and dealing, just doing her thing. She yeah. was holding a pair... Oh yeah! But I had to try. Her juice was wild, but my ace was high. So just a game, just just a just, just a game of, game of cards with your mum, I guess. Yeah. Um, or your grandma. How was I to know that she'd been shuffled before? I like. <laughs> How? That's, that's, that's strange. How can a person be shuffled? That's a, right. an odd lyric. And let's let's compare and contrast so it's nice that you kind of toned it down for the live version yeah well you know, you know trying to be sensitive yeah yeah i mean there could be some people in the audience who would be offended by such things right right so the live version i think you probably thought i don't think people fully understand what this song's about yeah yeah i need to <laughs> there's there's some confusion yeah. as to what i'm singing about i feel like I i'm being to... misrepresented here yeah yeah so we've got um I don't even want to read some of these out. <laughs> <laughs> so my favourite ones, uh, I curdled her cream. <laughs> um, she was number 999 on the clinical list. 
and I fell in love with the dirty little bitch. Oh, my God. And then it says, in the midst of these lyrics, gonorrhea. Yeah, yeah, he does say that. Just does before it? the guitar solo, oh, he goes, right, okay. gonorrhea! Right, God, that just shows you how little I pay, pay attention sometimes, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that's... She gave me a mind, she gave me a body, but she gave it to anybody, but I made her cry. I mean, you know, it's of its time. It is it certainly of its time, yeah. Does yeah. Brian Johnson sing these, I wonder, live? I wonder which version he does, or they just don't do it all. It's probably far better yeah. songs to go in. Yeah, I mean, it, the mind boggles, really. The thing is, it, though, you know? in Bon Scott's defence... Go on. I think 99% of songs are about exactly what he's singing about. Yeah. Just people dress it up... And kind of the, the maybe they're not quite as direct. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, maybe that's not much of a defence, but um, no, yeah. I mean, and at times he did push it, like hand in a velvet glove. Is that from Touch Too Much? <laughs> that that Touch Too Much has one of the best um, lines in any song. Ever. Oh yeah, go on. The, um, the body of Venus with arms. Oh no, it's not that one. I thought you were going to say she wanted it. What was it? She wanted it hard. She wanted it, it fast. fast. She liked it done medium yeah. rare. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one as well. No, Body of Venus with Arms is just <laughs> amazing. Um, I mean... The, it's just you know, a slow blues, isn't it? Oh, sorry, go on. Yeah, it, 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 I'm going to use that phrase. It is very much of its time. <laughs> and if you th- if you look at, you know, cult, you know what was going on culturally, um, you know, in the, in the 60s and 70s, you know, it was all very sort of gender stereotype roles. You know, men went out and worked, women stayed at home and raised kids and made tea. And, you know, you had carry on films you know a lot of the music at the time objectified women and all that and there was a lot of it about which isn't a, a, anywhere near a justification this is veering into Sid James territory <laughs> 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 um, you know it's it's not a justification by any stretch of the imagination and and I think it is best left in the 1970s as, as, as exciting as the music is mm. you know and, and let's not forget that you know the lyrics might be inappropriate by today's standards but the music is mm. certainly not i've got an, i've written down when i did some notes on this that it's so laid back the drums they're almost kind of out of time yeah you know yeah. because just playing behind the beat so much yeah that it feels a bit like you know it's, yeah it's, it's, it's veering off here angus young's guitar solo on this you know the way it builds and and mm. You know, he's, he's not he's showing that he doesn't just do the super fast boogie blues pentatonic scale stuff. Mm. You know, he, he can really carefully and thoughtfully you know make his note choices. Mm. You know, he can he can make them hang on for as long as he chooses. You know, he can he can bend into notes. His phrasing is just impeccable. Um, yeah, it is. You know. Lyrically inappropriate, but musically spot on, you know. And it's interesting, actually, when you listen to, um, you know, what Malcolm Young's playing in the intro. He starts off playing the full chord, but when the vocal comes in, he plays the fifth. Right. Just the fifth note oh, right. of each chord. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, which is a really interesting choice, musical choice to make. And, and and I'm trying to sort of figure out why he would do that. And maybe it's just to sort of get out of the way of the vocal, perhaps. Mm, maybe. I've you never know. noticed it, which is means that it's the right thing to have done because it's not sticking out like a sore yeah. thumb, is it? Yeah. I would yeah. say of all the songs on the album, it's the one they could have done without. Um, I get well, why I, it's there because yeah. of the ebb and the flow of yeah. a live album and how... 
you know, of across two sides of a vinyl record, you want things to have a bit of dynamics that which are different from song to song, maybe. Yeah. Or, uh, so I get why it's yeah. there, but it's never really been one of my favourite ones. The only song that could have replaced it is Dog Eat Dog. Yeah. And there are enough songs in a similar vein to yeah. Dog Eat Dog on the album already. Yeah, it gives it a little bit of variety, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Right yeah. then. Should we play the song lyric game a little bit more then? Yeah, let's do it. What's um, next? Problem Child. Right. Um, which, as we've mentioned earlier, was originally on the night was the second song in the set. So, right. you know, you, I mean, you could do, probably do your own edit of this, but imagine Riff Raff ending mm. and then this song starting, you know, maintaining that intensity, like for two songs, you know, they, they are both quite high intensity tunes aren't they you know yeah it'd be like being rocketed off into space and then like the secondary booster kicking in and just mm. kicking you even further you know lyrically this one is not quite um it doesn't appear to be about women it's no. more just about it's got like a little undercurrent of violence to it hasn't it and yeah. kind of being a bit off rebellion the rails and stuff yeah it's yeah. you know a flick of my knife dead or alive i got a 45 which sound talk curlingly bad when you sort of read yeah. them off a page but it's Bon Scott and he can get away with a lot more than yeah. you know most people can um, get away with within songs some of the lines I've, I have read uh, some of the lines are about Angus Young right. that line Man in Blue I Make my stand no man's land on my own Man in Blue it's up to you the seed is stone don't know what that means I don't actually um, <laughs> now that you've read them out yeah. but I think the Man in Blue was, was Angus Young because I think one of his first Schoolboy uniforms was right, okay. like blue in colour. The vocal melody veers very close to um, Hell Ain't a Bad Place to Be. You know, it's the way All it right. raises at certain yeah. points. And I know a lot of it is very similar, isn't it? Yeah. But this one especially. This this song has actually appeared on three different ACDC albums. Has it? Yeah, so it was on, um, I think it was on Dirty Deeds right. originally. Let me just fact check myself as I go along. Yeah, so it's track five on Dirty Deeds, Done Dirt Cheap, and then a year later it's track five on Let There Be Rock. How bizarre. Yeah. Do you know what ACDC you can be sure of, though? There'll be no track four ballad. Yeah, yeah. I think all the albums we've done so far have had a track four. Oh, no, maybe Iron Maiden didn't. have had a track four ballad. I don't think there's such a thing as an ACDC ballad, is there? I think the Jack maybe is probably I'll... the closest you get to it. Problem Child... Um, is a great, like we said earlier, it's a great end of side one hmm. finisher. I think it whets your appetite for the second side. Yeah. Um, with its high intensity rock and roll stylings. So the first one on the second side is? Uh, a whole lot of Rosie. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the unlive version. Um, which, in spite of it patently being a studio recording being passed off as a live recording, it's still great. I know, I think it's they did quite exciting. a good job of it. They still did quite a good job of it, I think. Yeah, it's still, you know, a hugely exciting, energetic recording. It's got some really good vocals in it as well. We're back in Bon Scott's um, yeah. um, kind of specialist area. Yeah, I mean, I've heard him talk about um, Rosie, the person, in interviews, and apparently the story is that he and Malcolm Young ended up back at Rosie's place mm. And she is, by all accounts, as described in in real life, or was um, as described at the time. Hmm. And Malcolm Young managed to escape, leaving Bon Scott on his own. Yeah, it's, um, again, 
it's of its time, isn't it, really? Um, but the music's fantastic. There is. So <laughs> we overlook it, don't we? Uh, well, you can hold two opinions at the same time, two contrasting opinions. You can hold them in one in each hand, yeah. and both can be true. Yeah. But, you know, you can say, on the one hand, these lyrics are, by today's standards are massively inappropriate, but on the other hand, you can say, but the music's fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah. You know? um, Let's go with that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Rock and Roll Damnation, which is possibly... Contender for one of my favourite songs off this album. Is it? It is, yeah. Interesting. Um, I like the intro. It's just got a great groove to it. It has, yeah. The main riff sounds like Rosalie. Yeah, it does a me. bit, yeah. yeah. But it's quite a common riff. And it's yeah. got a really short guitar solo near the end, which is very unusual for ACDC. Yeah, yeah. Almost like they forgot about it and he was like, oh, God, you know, yeah. best put one in. So have we got some sample lyrics for Rock and oh, Roll yeah. I think I think this is probably going to be... Um, more along the lines of a riffraff yeah. um, type lyrical content. And say that you play too loud, well, baby, that's tough. Say that you got too much, can't get enough. I don't think there's anything that's veering on the... Uh, apart from, come on, get up off your bended knees, you could set your mind at ease. Yeah. My temperature's running hot, so I've been waiting for a bite of what you've got. I, don't, I have no idea what that means. I don't know. Maybe she just got Deliveroo. Yeah, maybe. Possibly. Yeah. 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 Dubious backing vocals. Yeah, well, apparently the, the, there are dubious backing vocals throughout um, this album. And, and and probably the reason for that is that, you know, as we spoke about earlier, you know, when you've got two open mics on stage mm. in front of that wall of noise, there's just going to be so much bleed. And even if Malcolm Young and Cliff Williams are stood right in front of the mic, there's still going to be so much bleed in those mics. Yeah. Um, that you know, in order to get a clean um, version of the backing vocals that doesn't colour what else is going on on the album, because there'll be plenty of mic coloration going on as well. They probably re-record yeah. all the backing vocals. I think you're probably right. Um, and and stick them in there because um, I don't think Malcolm, neither Malcolm Young or Cliff Williams, are known for their vocal prowess either. So you know, to give them every opportunity to deliver a um, you know, a, a, an in-tune performance. High Voltage. Great song, I love High Voltage. This is the Chuck Berry one. Yeah, yeah. With the little uh, double stops. It reminds me, it's like Paradise City, with yeah. the so far away bit in Paradise yeah. City. Yeah. It's that kind of little movement, isn't it? Yeah. Um, this is another one about rebellion, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I think there are two aspects to Bon Scott's lyric writing one of which is womanizing and the other is uh, racking yeah being a rebel yeah and this is in the rebel camp is this one yeah definitely definitely it's a great it's a great song and there's some good um it kind of shows off that you know bon scott was a charismatic frontman who could you know yeah. get a crowd going and yeah. you know he's got that call and response i want to see he say hi oh it's man on, live his voice there yeah it's god that it's, must have taken it out of his vocal cords a bit, that. Yeah. Especially the very, very last one. Yeah. There's there's something quite um preacher man about yeah. the whole thing. You know, it could it could almost be like he's in a gospel. Like I'm coming to America. Church. Yeah. yeah. Randy Watson. <laughs> and if the Lord is wrong, I don't want to yeah. be. Yeah, I never right. thought of that, but I think, yeah, you're probably right. 
Yeah. To be honest, like you know, when you look at Bruce Springsteen's shows. I think his shows have got a sort of almost mm. gospelly, religious yeah. worship at the altar of rock and roll sort of bent to them. Yeah, yeah. It's you know, the rock concert is a curious social mm. um, event, really. Into you know. Um, it certainly is. But yeah, yeah, you know, Axl Rose probably had ACDC in mind, maybe when, you it, know. It's, yeah, they're cut from the same cloth, aren't they? Yeah. Definitely. Because yeah. they did a live version of Whole Lot of Roses, didn't they? Around the time of, recorded at Marquee in London, um, yeah. around the time of Appetite for Destruction being released, I think it was. In yeah. fact, I think it's on some of like the bonus editions or yeah. deluxe versions. Yeah. It's not particularly good, surprisingly. No, it's no. not that good. Well, you know, at the t- I remember watching this is a sidetrack the Ritz New York Ritz performance. Oh my word! And at the time, I thought that was amazing, but I watch it now and I just think that mm. is, you know, I, well, it's just the tuning on it. Yeah, I think as a performance, I think it's still really good. Yeah, but the some of the stuff's really, really out of tune on it. Yeah. Like the intro to Night Train's a bit like, oh my word. Yeah, yeah, I think. <clears> um, Definitely quite a lot of cocaine going on backstage before they, <laughs> before yeah. they went on stage. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know what else to say about High Voltage. You know, it's got a great intro. You know, bow, bow, ba, down, bow. I just love yeah. it. Just love it. It's um, an ACDC song called High Voltage. Yeah. It, it's, it is what it is, isn't it? High Voltage Rock and Roll. It's yeah. setting the stall out. And on to the next one, Let There Be Rock. Drum yeah. intro. Well, interesting. That snare drum yeah. intro is just so simple, but it's... Yeah, it is. That 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 intro is great. Um, it's fun, funnily enough talking about you know preacher man gospelly kind of things. If the video to let oh. there be rock features the church, yeah, church. Yeah, features pulpit. Bomb Scott in a pulpit. Yeah. Um, this is very much in it. Yeah, preachery actually. Yeah, I'd, I'd not really thought about it before. Yeah. White man had the schmaltz. Yeah, I'm not sure what the schmaltz is. Um, maybe. And did Tchaikovsky actually say? Let there be sound, and there was sound. I don't think so, but it's, I think that's a reference to Chuck Berry, "Roll Over Beethoven," "Roll Over Beethoven," tell Tchaikovsky the news. Right. Okay. Oh, so I'm with you. I think it's probably a reference to that. Oh, very good. The guitar man got famous. The businessman got rich. Well, you know, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll, isn't it? You have to put up with some businessman getting rich. Yep. Fifteen million fingers learning how to play, and you can hear the fingers picking. This is what they had to say. Yeah, yeah it's it's very much, um, you know, a, a, a rock and roll origin story, mm. isn't it? it is. It's like it's good. It's like Genesis, a rock and roll Genesis set to set to music. And then um, the ending of the album, I think of all the ACDC songs, this is the one I know the least from this album. It's yeah, just, it just doesn't do it for me for some reason. I've I've, I've read some other. It was one of Bon Scott's favourite songs to perform. Mm. You know, because it is just that old school rock and roll. It's Twelve bar blues, isn't it? Twelve bar blues thing. Yeah. The main riff sounds like a mishmash of whole lot of Rosie and rock and roll damnation together. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I think in its shortened form as it appears on the album, it is a brilliant sort yeah. of three minute statement. And you know, we we know that the version performed on the night was significantly longer because it had to accommodate a foray into the audience for. Angus Young, mm. and he also appeared on the balcony at one point with a spotlight on him, you know, mm. carrying on playing his solo, and then he had to go back downstage, which is testament to the SVDS, really, that it managed to maintain its signal. But just to get back to Rocker, they had to change a clothing to, to play this song, and they came out 
wearing Scotland football oh, kits. Oh, yeah. I was thinking he ju- they just came back out with a different T-shirt and some yeah. different jeans on. No, no, the, the, because 1978 was World Cup year. Archie Gemmell. Yeah, Archie Gemmell in Argentina against Holland. Mm. And I always watched this thinking, well, Bon Scott, Malcolm Young and um, Angus Young that are all of Scottish <laughs> Scottish descent. Yeah. Um, which is fair enough. Phil Rudd, well, I think he's of Polish origin, right. which, you know, I think his ancestors are all from Poland. So, you know, he's probably not that bothered. But Cliff Williams, poor Cliff Williams is an English bloke hmm. being forced to wear a Scotland football kit. Oh, my days. Can you imagine how he felt? Can you imagine, like, you know, that's probably one of his first tours with the band and he's thinking, what are the shit are they going to make me do on this tour? I know. You know, like, being forced to wear a Scotland football kit. As an English guy. Well, at least he did it. You know, football's a very serious business in the UK and um, fair play to Cliff, Cliff Williams yep. for agreeing to that because uh, I'm not sure... Well, to be honest, I wouldn't give a shit, uh, you know, because I don't really follow football. I don't really care that much. So yeah, Billy would. Corgan come out in a Manchester United kit when we he went did, to see yeah, him. Yeah, he came out dressed as David Beckham because it was Halloween and James Eha was some Manchester City player that nobody had ever heard of. At least right, okay. I'd never heard of. Um, yeah. Melissa Afterman. She smiled at me. The chair? Yeah, what, directly When you were right me. up at the balcony? Yeah, directly at me. I know you don't believe me. I've said this before and I know you don't believe me, but she looked me in the eyes and she smiled at me. She did and, and I nearly <laughs> fell off the balcony. <laughs> <laughs> she did, honestly. Right. All right, then. I'll, yeah. um, yes, she did then. I'll yes, let you have she that. did. Don't, don't patronise me. <laughs> um, all in all? All in all. A perfect live album? I, I, do you know what? I don't think it is perfect. And the reason for that is whole lot of Rosie. Wow. I don't think it's perfect. If it was perfect, it mm. would be fully 100% live. Yeah. I'm going to um, forget the fact that that's not live. You're because just gonna... I lived in complete ignorance of that fact up until about three weeks ago. So I'm going to try and forget it. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, if you want to live in denial, mm. then that's mm. that's fine. It's always the best way. So, um, so yeah, so that is, yeah. in a nutshell... Um, <laughs> Help! I'm in a nutshell. Um, that is ACDC. If you want blood, you've got it. Yeah. Which, so get your tight jeans on. Get your tight jeans on and uh, four pack of beer and a Walkman. Get on a bus. Yeah. Take a bus ride and listen to that. <laughs> So uh, we, what, what are we going to be doing next time, Julian? Next time we will take a look at a very uncomfortable album, Dirt by An- Alice in Chains. Another uncomfortable album? Yeah, you're going to love it. Oh, man. So for me, Lane Staley's uh, Finest Hour, and it's one of those albums that's a bit of a slow burner, uh, and they're often the best. So, yeah, we're doing that one next. Cool. See you next time. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Rock Geeks podcast. If you have any comments, corrections and or constructive criticism, you can contact us at therockgeeks at gmail.com. If you have anything unnecessarily rude to say, please put it in your own trash folder and delete it to save us the bother. While we do read every email we receive, we cannot unfortunately guarantee a reply. The Rock Geeks is researched, written and presented by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Jingles composed and recorded by Phil Greenwood and Julian Gallagher. Editing by Phil Greenwood. If you have enjoyed the Rock Geeks podcast, please consider joining us at Patreon, where in exchange for your generosity you will receive ad-free episodes, bonus content and early access. Or alternatively, it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review and tell your friends about us.